this is where I understand both sides of the coin, you know, um, growing up in the neighborhood I grew up in, not being a gangster, but seeing how the police interacted with gangsters on, on one hand, I was glad because some of those guys needed what they got. But on the other hand is you get caught up as just like an innocent bystander with that when they can't separate the two. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I was, you know, I walked through my neighborhood and I didn't look like a gangster at all. I had long hair, wearing OP shorts and a Hawaiian t-shirt, man. I, you know, I didn't have the gangster dress and, uh, they'd pull you over and, uh, kind of do an interrogation. I remember one time, man, it was, uh, there, there was two times in my life where a gangster actually saved, saved my life. It's funny. It's, it's funny to say, but he did. One time he saved me from gang members and the other time he saved me from the police from LAPE. Same guy. Yeah, same guy. He's, oh wow! Yeah, yeah. It was it was kind of funny the way it happened. Uh, um, there's this one officer in, in LAP. I won't mention his name because you know who knows what happened to him now and what course his life led. You know, but uh, uh, he used to be pretty brutal. And uh, one time he and his partner jammed me up. I was coming up from the local park, uh, you know, just walking, and and they pulled me over and you know jammed me up, put me in the back seat of their unmarked car. And it was just a soft back seat, and, and this guy was in the back seat with me, and his partner was sitting in the passenger seat, kind of turned around facing me, and I'm on the I'm behind the driver's seat in the back seat, right? And he's asking me questions, and and I was like, you know, whenever I gave him a, like a negative, like I didn't know or whatever, um, he he had his baton in his hand, he popped me on top of the head, you know, and and then my eyes were just man, my eyes were watering, and I was like, damn, and uh, I thought, you know, I thought. You know, screw these guys. Like, like, it made me not like cops. You know, not in general, but these two for sure. Um, and there was a knock at the at the window, and it was this one of these gang members. Like, if you had to describe describe the biggest dude, like you know, cause like Hispanic people, Mexicans in particular, aren't that big, right? This guy probably would have been the king of the Mexicans. Like, he was big, man, and and he was used to going to prison. And back then, in the prison yards, they had iron weights and stuff. And so when he got out, he was just like, like Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of guy, but taller, just a big guy. And they called him big psycho. And it's a funny name. Right. And, but he knocked on the window and the guy rolled down the window and said, what do you want? And he goes, Hey, uh, just let you know that he ain't one of us, man. He's not a gang member. That's arts kid. And if he sees you doing that to his kid, he's going to kill you both. Cause everybody, my dad had just like a reputation. My dad was not a gang member. Didn't like him. Everybody knew it, but they all respected him. And, um, and, and then the cop looks at me and he goes, why don't you tell me who your dad was? And I was like, you didn't ask, you didn't <laughs> ask man, you know. Welcome to the Transition Drill Podcast. Joining me for episode 90 is Rich Bohorquez. Rich, or as he's better known as Bojo, grew up where street gangs were right outside his front door. He avoided joining a gang, but not until after a lot of fights and a chance assist from a powerful local gang leader. Always interested in the military, he enlisted in the Navy right out of high school. But close to the end of his first enlistment, a chance meet-up with a high school friend who had just become a deputy sheriff changed his direction. Bojo came out of the Navy and joined the LA Sheriff's Department in 1990. 33 years in, today he's a sergeant and closing in on retirement. He's worked gangs and narcotics, but his passion is helping veterans struggling with mental health issues and homelessness. Bojo is the veteran liaison officer of the Mental Health Evaluation Team, where he and his team collaborate with a team of civilians and members from the VA hospital to help veterans. 
Bojo is truly passionate about giving back to others. He went as far as on his off-duty time staying in a tent and engaging the services of the VA to better understand the veterans that he encounters. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Please help me grow the podcast by continuing to spread the word to anyone who might enjoy listening to it. You always been into boxing? Uh, no, man. I didn't start boxing until I was 42. Oh, what brought it, what brought it on so late? You know what? I, uh, I always wanted to do it, but I had a head injury when I was a kid, so it always restricted me. And I was always afraid to get hit because the doctors always told me, you get hit again, you're going to die. And and, uh, and then I had a couple of x-rays, a couple of doctors' opinions. They said, man, the bone's there. It's good. It's stronger than it was. So I just went for it, and uh, it was fun. Just kind of <laughs> one of those, like, old-school doctors going, oh, you know, you kind of worsened it in injury. And then when I, uh, when I was I, – I actually uh, got in an accident at a park when I was a kid, crushed my skull from here to here. They had to remove a big – portion of the uh, skull itself the bone they never put a plate or anything in there um because the doctor at the time it had never been done before that surgery the doctor said uh it should grow back kind of like the soft part of a baby's skull because i was like nine or twelve i don't remember like i raised a portion of my life um that i don't have a memory of but uh i remember recovering going through it and i could i could literally feel the bone growing back and then it was just solid one day you know and Everything was good, but I had to always be cautious of that growing up. So I never got into like contact sports. I had to stop playing football, you know, all that stuff. And uh, just do track and swimming and stuff like that that I really wasn't into. And then just later in life, I just thought, you know, I'm going to try it just for fitness. And uh, I really liked it. I really liked it and just kept doing it until I stopped boxing when I was 50. And just because, you know, it's hard to find somebody your age that wants to do that kind of thing. <laughs> I mean, guys our age, doesn't, they don't want to do that crap. It hurts. And uh, I just got back into it again last month. So um, over at uh, Shark Sports Boxing in Whittier, while I was doing it, I was more or less there because the way I look at things is like when I was growing up, I always wanted somebody's help, you know, like I grew up in a poor family, didn't have, you know, anything, whatever. And so I just became that in my mind, that helper guy. So when I was in the gym, there's a lot of kids there in, in the gym I was going to in uh, Ponce de Leon's gym in uh, Whittier, I mean, in uh, Montebello. Um, and there was a lot of poor kids just sitting on the bench because their parents could only afford to put one or two of the brothers in. So I'd take the kid off the bench, and I'd sponsor him and pay his boxing fee, buy his equipment. And um, there was a team of kids. I sponsored like four or five kids. Um, and they all grew up in it and like, I think 90% of them turned pro. Ryan Garcia was one of them. Um, you the know, kid that just fought a couple yeah, weeks ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, he was on the uh, – he boxed at the same gym I was, I was going to or he's training at the same gym as a kid. All these guys were, you know, in their teens. Like, I think Ryan was like 15 or 16. He was kind of the oldest. One of the kids I sponsored the longest – I started sponsoring when he was eight. He just turned 21, and he's turning pro. Two of his brothers turned pro. Um, then there was another kid that went on to, uh, box. Well, he was going to box for the Olympics. He qualified for our Olympic boxing team for the U S and then, uh, COVID hit and smashed that dream. So he decided to turn pro. Got it. So it's a good core group of kids, man. And I st- still contact with them. That's what the shark sports is, 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 uh, Pablo, the shark Rubio. Um, he was one of the kids. He was older too. Like Ryan He's about 14. When I met him, he's about 20, I don't know, 26 now, 25. He started his own gym. So, you know, I just kind of just still going and still looking, right? I know it's like I'm not going to spar anybody. I'm not going to do anything other than work out, man. That's it. But being in that presence is kind of cool because then I 
find people, and then I I developed it into a another place to take the guys I deal with. Right. Right. It's just another thing, and I'm willing to put my body in line as old as I am now, you know, and as broken as I feel with all the accidents and the surgeries and crap. Um, I'm still willing to go through it and just kind of give a chance for maybe it, it's an an in for somebody to heal, right? Like just give you something. It's kind of like what we do with the with the veterans with the sailing programs and all the other stuff we got going on. It's just another thing. Very cool. So. You mentioned growing up poor. So where is hometown for you? So I grew up in Atwater, California. Um, it's right across from, like, if you know where the uh, Griffith Park and the mountains and, like, Dodger Stadium is, right across the L.A. River, there was a small town there, um, Atwater. And uh, it's nice now, man. It's all gentrified and cool. <laughs> I went there a couple of weeks ago. Uh, some guy from New York flew out and wanted to meet with me, and uh, we went to, went to lunch. And I was like, you sure you want to eat there, man? I hadn't been there in years. Like, I don't feel like getting shot hanging out on the, you know, on the street, you know, just, he's like, dude, it's changed. Um, and it has. And, uh, so the part where I grew up, it was a gang neighborhood known as Toonerville. And, uh, a lot of bad people came from that place, man. A lot of good people. So, um, I just, my grandfather had some apartment buildings that he wanted managed. I hired my dad to do it. My dad moved us there and, uh, you know, I grew up there for a while, but, uh, I had to go somewhere else. I had to live with my grandparents during school because I tried going to school there, and it was just too much trouble, man. It was just, just bad. And uh, even I knew as a kid, it was like, this ain't for me. So live with my grandparents to go to high school, went went to high school in Burbank, and then uh, then I joined the Navy when I was 17. As a young – well, take that step backwards. Big family, small family. You mentioned your your dad was the, the, the manager of the apartment complex. Yeah. Other sisters? Yeah, I had, uh, I have a, uh, well, at the time I had a, um, just my brother and sister, and then my mom had another, had a baby. So I had, a, had like, a, I think when I left the house, she was three or four. Oh, wow. Yeah. So when I was 17. So, you know, there's a big gap between kids. I kind of followed my parents' footsteps because I got a four year old now, and my oldest is 30. So, <laughs> you know, it's just like, damn, what was I thinking? But, best thing ever happened to me in my life you know so he's keeping me alive and uh keeping me wanting to to find ways to go on man and just keep trudging through it you know keeping you feeling young at least yeah yeah well i don't know some people say oh he's gonna keep you young i said no he's probably gonna kill me but <laughs> it's gonna be fun going on the way out man because the kid's full of energy so yeah it's good times you already mentioned school being an issue you know in the gang life and stuff yeah were you parents really strict and trying to keep you out of the gang life you know what um it's not that they were strict in keeping me out is i feared my dad more than i feared the gangsters if i joined a gang, my dad would have killed me right as soon as i came home you know i know that for a fact so i was like i'm not doing that and then i respected my mom so much i was like i was not gonna hurt her the way i've seen some of these gangsters hurt their parents you right. know and i was like i can't do that to my parents either so i always lived kind of a just like a loner in the neighborhood, just staying out of it, staying away, not hanging out, fighting to stay out of the gang rather than getting jumped in, stuff like that. So, and uh, that's that's kind of why, you know, I had some choices growing up as far as that goes. I'm glad I made the right ones. And uh, fear was a good factor, a good influencer, because my dad was heavy handed. And I'm glad he was, you know, because I probably would have been eventually just sucked into that life. Um, but, Again, I just feared my dad more than I feared gangsters, man. I was like, nope, not doing it. And um, that's why I decided I, I, I joined the Navy when I was 17. Um, my dad had lost his best friend in Vietnam, 
So he's really against it, man. He never, he was like, you're not going to the military, you know, this and that. And my mom was more understanding. She was like, if that's what you want to do, it's what you want to do. Um, so eventually she worked on my dad because he had to sign. For the delayed enlistment or delayed entry? Well, I, yeah. Well, I went in when I was 17. I literally was in boot oh. camp at 17 because I graduated high school when I was 17. I started school early. Got it. And um, I, I was literally like the youngest one in boot camp. And then when I got to the ship, I was the youngest one on the ship for a while, you know. And um, it, it, it was just, um, if it wasn't for them allowing me to kind of pursue my dream, um, who knows? knows what would happen probably when to pursue the afterlife what i'm doing now in law enforcement and stuff like that but uh you know I, I just look back and i think you know everything just fell into place you said something really poignant in that you feared your dad more than you feared the gangs and for a lot of us i think of that generation it mm-hmm. what, that's how we were raised yeah. in the sense of i was more fearful of having to tell my dad if i ever got in trouble <laughs> than getting in trouble law enforcement whatever but at the time, I just looked at it. I didn't see it in that big picture. I just saw it as like, oh, he's strict and he's you know trying to control my life. Did you, at that point in time as a young boy, actually appreciate it? Or was it just like, I, not nah, really understanding I, it? I hated my dad. I wanted him dead. You know, and, and I wrote him a letter later in life, you know, thanking him for everything he did. Because, you know, when you're young and you're caught up in that, you only see what you can see. And you right. don't, it's kind of like when somebody explains to you there's a bigger picture than what you can see. But you still can't see it no matter how hard you try until you mature and get older. And then you see like, oh, that's it, right? Um, that's kind of what happened between me and my dad. I, I didn't like him, man. He was just rough. and 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 I, But I did understand because the softer side, like my mom, she always explained to me what my dad went through growing up. And he grew up with a father, came out of the Navy, World War II, you know, was a member of a motorcycle gang for a while. Just was a complete, you know, just mean, mean. My dad grew up with no love. Right. Like none. So it was amazing what he was able to do for me at the time. I didn't realize it. I just thought, man, the guy just hates me. You know, I mean, why the hell did he have me? Right. Um, but as you grew up, man, you learn. It's like, man, he was really the, the only one on my side. You know, he was looking out for me and, and wanted me to succeed. It was just his ways were a lot different. Well, and it's yeah. it's a byproduct of how he was raised. Yeah. You know. And I know for me now as an adult in in raising children, talk about just a huge battle that your parents went through and and my parents went through of you want your kids to grow up and be good, productive members of society. But at the same token, you fight that battle of how much can I protect them and how much do I have to just say, I've raised them the right way. I got to give them their wings and let them make yeah. their own decisions. Yeah, that was, that was the, uh, I think even having my own kids, like I said, my, my oldest is 30 um, and she just had my second grandchild. And uh, that was the hardest part, man, is, is trying to find a way to allow them to fail and, and still be there, right? Like, you know, what's going to happen as a father, you've seen it. Growing up, you know what worked for you, what didn't, and you're trying to apply it in the best way without, without using the same tactics our parents did, right? Like, I didn't really hit my kids, man. I had to spank them a couple times in their life. They learned. Then it was the finger countdown, <laughs> you know? And uh, But there's that time where you want to do more for them, um, but you know if you do, you cripple them. So you kind of, that's where, like, it, it hurts me more than it hurts you. Right. You pull away and just watch them try it take take a stab at it and like i think it was harder with my daughter because she wanted to do so much that just wasn't in her realm and she failed a couple times and now she's like 
ultra successful. Same with my son, but my son was, man, he, that kid was way smarter than I ever was. Uh, my oldest son, um, Rich Jr., he, uh, he figured it out like early. He was football, like big time football. Like I had him in, you know, the pop Warner and I, that's the path I want him to take. Cause he was, you know, six foot two at, you know, 12 and he's just a big <laughs> kid. And, and, uh, he just came to me in high school. It was last year in high school when he should have been in it. He's like, dad, this ain't the path I want to go. It's not for me. And I, and I said, cool. What's your plan? You know, and he, he laid out his plan. I said, you got it, man. I, I can't hate you for that. I can't, I can't be against you. Uh, support it as yeah. long as you have a plan. So that's kind of the thing I've always tried to tell my kids is just whatever you want to do in life, man, develop a plan, get there the best way you can, you know, and if you need my help, then I'll, then I'll help you. But you got to take the first steps. Kind of like the same thing we tell with these guys we deal with, man. I'll, I'll get you to the door, but you got to go in and do all the work. You know, I can't do it for you. Yeah. So. And you, you've said something else that I think is, is also really important that we lose as children growing up in a single family household. You got the benefit of your mom and dad were there. Yeah. As mean and as strict as your dad was, you had the perfect polar opposite in a supporting mom. And for kids, myself included, who grew up in a single family household, you're the byproduct of only one half of that equation. Yeah. If you've got an extremely strict parent, then you're going to go probably the opposite way and maybe not be as strict or, or, or rebel even more. Yeah. It was, it sounds cool that you had that, that yin and that yang, your dad was really hard, but then here came your mom and was like, Hey, calm down. You're, yeah. you're, and so a lot, that's what a lot of kids lose when they don't have that household. Yeah. And, and I think that dynamic hundred percent agree with what you just said, that, that without that, how I would have been done. Right. So very fortunate to have two parents in the household, you know, keeping me regulated. The other thing is I had a good example of, of how not to be like, I call it the, like the way I saw it, it was like the blind, not just the blind leading the blind. It was a blind, deaf and dumb leading each other around in the neighborhood, man. These guys were just doing everything wrong and you could see they were going to fail. And, you know, um, murder after murder after murder people dying in the neighborhood because of the choices they made you know and, and then drug overdoses and all the other stuff you see that was just a prime example if you were paying attention i'm not doing that right. no way so um that was that became another driving force inside me i thought you know these and i i had no compassion for gangsters at all because i saw the evil they do with each other i that's when i first joined the career i joined that was my thing. I wanted to go after those guys, man, because they were victimizing everybody in the neighborhood. I remember there were certain places you couldn't go. And and even back then, you know, it was the early 80s. It wasn't like they were doing drive-bys, even though it happened, but it, that wasn't a thing, right? Um, they were still more for meeting up and duking it out or shooting each other or whatever they were doing. Um, but then there was so many places you couldn't, like no-go zones. And I thought, man this sucks. Like you had these predators that totally took over areas of the neighborhood. And I noticed that when, and it's kind of weird, but gangsters had some kind of morals back then. Like they, if you were with your female, with your, with your girlfriend, you were hands off, right? Nobody could touch you. Right. And then that started ending. Uh, the elderly, they still had a respect for, um, there were certain, certain things as sick as it sounds, they still had some kind of, you know, rules that they follow. Weird followed. code of ethics. Yeah, weird code of ethics. And uh, then I started watching that whittle away, you know, especially when I got out 
with the Navy and, you know, I kind of went back to the old neighborhood to visit some of the old friends I was talking to because I was literally trying to recruit them out of the neighborhood too. Um, and uh, it, everything had changed. And it was just like early on in my career when I started going after them, we had a lot of success. Gangsters were getting out of the streets. The streets were made better. Things were getting safer. People were playing in the parks again. Neighborhoods were flourishing. And then it seemed like the powers that be started changing all the rules. Started started saying, well, you you can't do this. You can't do that. Even though we were playing by the rules. And then all of a sudden, they were winning again. And things were just started reverting back to the way it was. Um, I spent... In the last 34 years, I probably spent a good 20 years of my career at East LA. And I watched it go from being totally the way I described early on, where people just weren't safe. They weren't going out. The kids were just living in terror. And I remember in my neighborhood, you know, my grandfather built a wall in front of our house so we could sleep on the floor in the summertime so we wouldn't get hit. Because even though drive-bys weren't a thing, it would happen every once in a while. Right. Um, that was a thing. Like, every night there were drive-bys, like, Every single night, especially in the summertime, you had five and six a night in in the area, in the East Los Angeles area where I was working. The efforts of what we were doing to try and suppress that and get rid of it were working. It took a while. I think the nineties, like ninety ninety five to ninety eight, was the most violent time in history, with all the drive bys and the gun violence and all that crap. Um, but they did a good job. All the people working in that, you know, all the agencies that were working at did a good job of suppressing that and, and helping it to go away. And things were better, man. I, I would see kids playing in the park, you know, and this was just like 10 years ago till, till about up until about a couple of years ago. Right. Kids were playing in the parks. Everything was like kind of normal in those neighborhoods that, that you thought, man, there was no hope. Now you see it. Right. And uh, it seems like we're losing again. You know, it's starting to, to reverse and starting to go back the way it used to be. So, you know, I, I, the gang thing became like kind of real disheartening for me. And I thought, man, we're not going to win this fight. So I kind of got out of that, kind of wandered around in my career for a while. And then I found what, what I'm doing now with helping veterans. And, uh, you know, it's become a passion, you know, for me. Let me pause you and take you backwards a little bit. Yeah. So you mentioned as a young boy, the accident which screwed up your head, which mm-hmm. prevented you from playing a lot of the contact sports. So mm-hmm. you really played sports that you really didn't enjoy. Right. What about the academic side? Did you like school? No, I hated it. I, I was, school was boring to me because I wasn't being challenged. Like I literally would fall asleep in all my classes that were like, you know, English, you know, I, I never, math I never got. So it was always like a. No one ever get I got never math. got math and I never saw a need for it, you know, for me at the time. Um um, I learned more math in my machinery school, like machine shop. Um, my teacher taught me um, um, calculus, <laughs> believe it or not, because you needed a lot of that to do a lot of the yeah. formulas for machine work. And uh, I got that, but it, it just seemed like I didn't enjoy school because it wasn't challenging. Like math would have probably been the only challenge that I could have taken on if, if I wanted to, but I just didn't see a need for my life for it. But the rest was nothing i graduated with straight a's i didn't even try I, I rarely showed up i would fall asleep in class i'd get up i'd look at the assignment i wasn't paying attention to the teacher i'd go home i'd do my homework that i was supposed to do i'd study a little bit on the bus ride back to school and then i'd take the test and, and pass and i was just like i wasn't being challenged enough it felt like right and then i couldn't enter the arenas where i really wanted to be challenged because 
it was very regulated for some things, right? Like uh, if you didn't play, you know, football as a sophomore, then you couldn't play as a senior kind of thing. And, you know, cause that was like kind of like a process you had right. to go through. And so I just felt like, you know, none of this world mattered to me, like the school thing. Matter of fact, I've, I think I'm coming up on my 40 year anniversary, you know, almost. And I haven't gone to one of my reunions for school. Not that I didn't like the people. I love the people I went to school with, but I was very like into, you know, introverted at the time. Right. And uh, so I just, school wasn't a challenge, man. It, it just, it, it didn't, that's, I think that's why I chose the Navy. Um, and then when I got out of the Navy, my intent was to go to the Marine Corps and if that didn't work, I was going to go in the army and just find out what was the most challenging thing. But I ended up getting hired onto my department, and that's been a challenge ever since. So I, I like that. You know. Now you mentioned, well, just real quick. So no, no thought of even attempting college after high school. I did, but it was the same result for me. Like I'd sit here and it's almost like you listen to people that are trying to teach you something you already have knowledge of, and. And it's painful to go through those steps of listening to them just to arrive at a point where I could say, you got a certificate, here you go. And it's like, it was, it seemed like a waste of time to me. You know, every time I've attempted school at that level and I've been, I've got a lot of calls. I'm like probably three credits away from getting <laughs> in my associate. And if I pursued it, I probably would get my bachelor pretty quick. Complete waste of time for me. Right. For me. Because, um, you know, it's funny because I, I, I heard I got a little bit of uh, redemption. I heard Elon Musk say, you know, you waste your time on on, you know, trying to get a degree in college when you can just there's all information is free. Now you can go out and get it any way you want, apply it however you need to to do whatever you want. Um, back then, we didn't have the Internet, but it kind of felt the same way. I would go and hang out in, in somebody's shop and just just being hanging out and talking to them. I could engage with them and then learn how to do whatever it is they were doing. Right. And so I developed skills that way. Um, my, a good friend of mine, he, you know, he passed away a couple of years back. A guy named Eddie Paul. That's how I met him. I, I needed a planishing hammer cause I was, I was fabricating motorcycles out of my garage and um, he had it and it was a Sunday. It was raining, knocked on the, on the door of a shop cause the light was on. I saw somebody moving around. This dude answered the door, and I thought he was a janitor. Took me on a tour of this whole shop. Amazing, amazing, incredible thing, what he was doing. Like, he was building, you know, motorcycles and rocket ships and all. Just, it was like being in a, a man's, you know, Disneyland for stuff like that. And uh, it was funny because uh, he, he's like, hey, so, uh, you know, I got these planishing hammers and whatnot. We were talking, and he, and, um, he says, well, do you work with your hands? Can you weld? I said, yeah. And uh, he goes, you want a job? And I laughed. I said, I kind of got a job. I'm just <laughs> doing this for, you know, on the side. He asked me what I did, and I told him, and, and uh, we hit it off from then on. And so I used to go, and all my spare time um, that I had, I would I would work at his shop for free. I, I didn't want him to pay me because I was collecting knowledge. I, I learned how to, you know, run, you know, run a CAD on a, you know, three-axis mill or whatever it was. You just Just everything you know, program lays, um, different types of welding and cutting and, and putting things together. Um, we worked, I did, I did a job for the discovery channel through Eddie Paul. It was Eddie was actually a contractor for it. 
And, but he would always task me with building the things that we needed. And I don't know if you ever seen that air jaws where the sharks, the great white sharks jump out of the water and bite the lure. Yeah. So I made those lures. And because early on in the days they were making like hard, like cutouts of like boogie boards or they were making like really like trying to replicate what a seal looks like out of like hard rubber and stuff. And so I guess some of the sharks were getting injured or, you know, it, it wasn't their intent, but, and then after a while, the sharks would, what Eddie was telling me, sharks would come up, bump it. They were learning. They yeah. just come up, bump it. And it wasn't effective. So he kind of, he, he, he asked me, he's like, Hey, can you, we need to make a lure, like a seal. And, uh, he just said, make it out of wetsuit material. He said, however you come up with it, that's on you. I would suggest you do it this way. And he was really good at guiding me, man. He was like a good mentor. Like he just knew what to do to kind of inspire you and to get you on the right track. It was all his idea, but he made me feel like it was mine, you know? And so I built this seal lure that was just total wetsuit material. And when you pulled it through the water, it filled up with water, had a valve on the back. So it wouldn't overfill like a balloon and pop. And so it, and then the, the, the fins would flop and so, and it looked like a baby seal, even from underneath all the angles and the shark would hit it. And it was just a wetsuit material full of water. So he'd hit it and, you know, come all the way out of the water and breach, hit the, hit the water. And it was funny because I guess, uh, who was it, PETA or somebody made a complaint. Saying they thought it was real? They thought it was real. <laughs> and you could see on the on Discovery Channel, I think, the fins, because uh, wetsuit material is black on one side and colored on the other. And we had, I think, red and blue at the time. And uh, the blue, I had to spray paint it black, but the blue still bled through. So you can kind of see the blue in the fins as it's getting hit, you know, and you can barely see the cord tied to it as it, as it's coming out of the water and stuff. Um, but you know, stuff like that, we're working for uh SpaceX, just building models of, of the rockets at the time that Elon, you want them displayed in his shop. And then he was doing all kinds of government work and just, the guy was just so multifaceted. He did the first, uh, all the cars for fast and furious one and two, you know, so, I immersed myself into that because that's where all the knowledge were was, and you could get it firsthand. Like it was there, man. And it just, you just had to sacrifice your time. And that was better than going to college. That was better than, you know, taking online courses, anything I could think of as far as gaining that kind of knowledge, that environment was better. And I could literally choose whatever arena I wanted to go into because it was there. So that's kind of, you know, the long story about something like that is is that's how I gave my education about stuff I'm interested in, you know, um, you know that's kind of what I did. Well, and you said previously you learned calculus by working in the metal shop, mm. but I'm sure the guy teaching you wasn't saying I'm going to teach you calculus. No, you learned the principles of calculus by doing it. Yep. And I wonder how many more students would thrive if classes were more practical than theoretical. Yeah. You know, just sitting there reading a book, especially when you get deep into mathematics or science and it just, and I know that there are classes, I think back to a lot of my science classes where it was hands-on. Yeah. But math, it was just literally, you know, a hundred problems on a, on a page and you yeah. just had to work through them. Yeah, to work through them. As opposed to, oh, let me put the principles of mathematics into action. Yeah. Like you said, learning angles and stuff for making something. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're going to go through all this. And the end results would be something tangible that you could see, you could put your hands on, you could use it. It's useful to you. It's not just, it just doesn't disappear once you're off the paper and you get a grade that says, oh, good job, you got an A or, you know, it's, like, again, it's like I got nothing out of that other than I, I had to go through these problems. Right. And a lot of times in, in 
kind of that's what I was saying about school. Like the whole, for me, the whole foundation, the whole structure of school was kind of like that. It's like, like my son, um, my son had a learning disability growing up, but math was his strong point. And the teachers, I had to go into so, these IEP meetings, right? Math was his strong point, and and you know the other stuff he, he was struggling with, but eventually he got it. But they thought he was cheating, like they thought he had a calculator because he wouldn't do the problems the way you're supposed to. He would just write the answer down. He would do it in his head and write the answer down. And they were like, you know, your son's cheating. I said, bring him in here. And so the 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 people in the IEP put some problems on the table and he just did the same thing. He just looked at them and wrote them down. And they're like, they couldn't understand, like, how come he's not going through the process? And then they asked him to write down the process he was doing. And he had a shortcut in his mind arriving at the same thing. They said, even though he's coming up with the right answer, he's doing it the wrong way. And we don't, we don't like that. And I was like, well, what's the point, man? Why are you guys doing this to him? He's, he's giving you the answer you need, not the answer you want or not in the way you want it. And so I was kind of on his side. I was like, yeah, don't worry about this, man. You, you do your best, and, and whatever they say, they say, I don't care. You know, you're doing the right thing. And uh, that's kind of like the frustrating part of what we go through. We all go through, right? There's well, and that's rules. the – that brings back so many memories because I remember as a kid hearing that same thing, show your work. It's not that you got the right answer, show your work. Yeah. It's like I got the right answer. Yeah. But And you bring up a great point because – somebody, whoever is making the rules is going to say, your son has a learning disability, but yet in his mind, he can completely process math. So how does he have a learning disability and the ability to completely process math in his head? Yeah. Maybe that's just a better indicator. And I've been hearing this lately that the, the K through 12 program was supposedly designed to put people in factory jobs. Yeah. You know, and so it's the... The idea that every one of us learns completely different, and I understand from a bureaucratic standpoint, if you've got to fill a room with 30 students, you've got to create a standard that one teacher can follow along, but that's not going to work for all 30 students. No, it doesn't. And learning should be about individual learning. How do you thrive in a given situation? If math comes easy to your son, I would say go the complete opposite way and challenge him more. Mm -hmm. If this is easy, let's try this one. You know, yeah. don't don't get hung up in the hey, he didn't show his work. No, he's got a an aptitude and ability. Let's drive that train. That's it. I mean, th I think that's how we all pick our ways, right? In life, you decide what, what. I mean, what's the cliche, right? If you do something you love, you never work your whole life, right? You're just going to be immersed in something you thrive in, and you're going to do. I think that's where the system fails. They don't. There's no test or there's no assessment of where the kids are already thriving, and then we're going to put all put all into that because there's a place in society for them to do that. Right, like you said, we just want we want laborers, factory workers, whatever people are just going to be stuck in a system that are be just going to be good enough for them to do a nine to five, collect a check at the end of the day, and pay their bills, and then come right back into it. Right, it's just that vicious cycle. Um, where the other way, like you just mentioned, now you're creating people. Who, who it's going to be a healthier donation to society once they achieve their goals. Cause where's their limits? Right. Only they know, you know? And uh, I just think you're right. What you just said, um, that's probably, that's the thing that's missing. And I think that's why there's so much depression, so many people turning inside and, you know, giving up or, you know, just doing 
you know, doing the thing that you'd never, never expect somebody to do. Um, because I don't, I don't think they, anybody bothered to tap into their heart, the things they love and then to, to, to contribute to that and encourage them to move in that direction. It's always been like, you know, you're going way outside. You like art, art ain't going to pay. So let's bring you back into this. You know, it's like, who knows what they would have created if somebody would let them go. Right. So. You mentioned meeting Eddie Paul and, and the growth of your hands-on skills in making things. Did you have any of that as a kid growing up? Was your dad mechanical? Yeah, my dad, uh, I grew up, my dad was a, uh, he was a race car driver. And, you know, again, that's probably part of the reason we were poor. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, but my dad could always find a way. Um, he's very competitive, but, uh, you know, he he barely got by. Man, it was like... Uh, if you can compare it, you know, while everybody's flying rockets, he's got the paper airplane, but his paper airplanes are keeping up with the rockets, you know, kind of thing. My dad would always be in the garage finding a way to do it on his own with his own hands. And a lot of times he needed help, but he didn't have anybody helping him. So me and my little brother were there to pull wrenches out and hand him the wrench and start the torch for him and stuff. And then, and then as we grew up, we were actually fabricating some of the stuff for him, helping repair the bodies, you know, change the tires and stuff. We kind of became his, his uh, even though he had his dad and a few of the neighborhood guys around him, as we got older, we were kind of become his pit crew. And then he passed that on to my little brother who pursued that for a while. Um, so, yeah, I had a, a very working mechanical knowledge. And I think I was born with it it's just because things make sense. I, I don't know how they do. I can't tell you how, but I like, if you show me something, I just kind of know how it's supposed to work. Like that, how that was made, what's in it. Show me a laptop. I kind of can figure out like, oh, I know what's inside there. I know how it's, I know the theory of it, but I can't tell you why. Right. You know, and that's kind of like when I was working with Eddie, he's like, that's exactly how I am. Um, he said, just some people are gifted that way, you know, and, and he, he told me, you know, pursue your gift, man, you know, do what you're good at. And, uh, always, Eddie was like kind of another father figure to me. Um, he always, he always encouraged me to just go in whatever direction I've, I thought I was happy in. And I was happy to go. I was like an ADD kid in a shop, man. Cause I would take it all on. I enjoyed every aspect of it because like you said earlier was you have that sense of accomplishment when you're done. It's not just a math problem on paper, but you actually made something from it, you know? And that's, that's kind of what we're, my uh, satisfaction was coming up with something that didn't exist. You know, you've meant, you've mentioned getting straight A's in school. You've mentioned your dad was not pro military because he had lost a, a friend in Vietnam. Was your dad able to avoid going to Vietnam? No, my dad got, uh, he got injured in boot camp oh, and okay. uh, shattered his, his feet. And so they just kind of kicked him out. And that was, I think the reason my dad joined was because of, you know, that's when all the kids in the neighborhoods were getting drafted. And, you know, you saw it like every week the car would pull up and they'd deliver the letters to his parents. And, you know, there was just so many kids. Like, you talk about the trauma for a generation, man. I mean, even the Iraq-Afghanistan war didn't impact society the way Vietnam did. Not in the sense of that that drama right. of the draft. Right. Well, not only that, but was the 
the constant knowledge that you saw a certain car pulling down the way these guys are dressing to deliver a letter of, hey, sorry, but you lost your child, right? Yeah. That happened in all the neighborhoods everywhere. And, you know, if you think it, it's these are high school age kids, you know, 18, 19, average age, some kids in Vietnam were 19, right? And uh, they, they weren't coming back. And so you just you kind of think of it like this, how fast do you have to grow up? You miss out on your childhood. So you have that whole generation. The Vietnam era guys were just treated crap like crap since they graduated high school to this day, right? They've never been redeemed. You, you think about it, you have children that were put, basically conscripted to war. Now they're at war and they're losing each other, right, at a at an alarming rate. Like there are 50,000 plus soldiers died in Vietnam, right? And most of them are kids. Now you think of how that affects the people at home who either couldn't go because they had some medical thing, you know, or just, you know, they just weren't drafted because they were females or whatever it was right at the time. What, what impact did that have on them as a generation? And what did it do to them? It's kind of like, you know, same thing, World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, you know, Korea, Vietnam. Um, the impact on society was just so harmful, I think. Like my dad, I feel if I feel like my dad wishes he would have went and and would have been okay if he died, I think in his mind. Because his best friend, this was like more than a brother to him, this guy, Johnny Campbell, he uh he was just like a, a kid mentor for my dad. When my dad, I told you the way he grew up and just like a loveless, like he had no love growing up. This guy was the one giving him love. And then all of a sudden he was gone. And my dad to this day carries that with him. Um, we'll go visit his grave all the time and, you know, weep like the day it happened. And, uh, you know, you, you just got to think how many more people were impacted like that in society to the level my dad was. And how did that affect their development from 1819 to this day you know how much more could could he and people like him have been in society how much more could they have done had that not happened that way you know just something i look at i i don't know what the if there's studies about that or things exist that kind of look into that just something i i see just reflecting and watching my dad when i was growing up i think all the way through vietnam and and you and I are old enough to to touch it a little bit, yeah. You know, because we did. We grew up with the Vietnam vets, but at the end of the day, we'll never be able to understand the. And you bring up a great point: the ancillary impact. So you had a bunch of kids who were drafted. Hey, here's your letter. You're going, but there were so many kids like your dad who maybe went and joined just because of. I don't want to call it peer pressure, but the feeling of I can't let my friends go and me not go. So I didn't get drafted. I'm going to go join the Marines. I didn't get drafted. I'm going to go join the Navy. Yeah. Where if all of that hadn't gone on, maybe, you know, that wouldn't have happened. But, and I don't want to definitely go down that rabbit hole. But one of the things that I've heard recently that really resonates with me is war would be completely different if the Kings fought it. Yeah. Yeah, they would, wouldn't it? You know, when it you think wouldn't about exist. <laughs> that empires like to go to war, but empires yeah. like to shove the young kid, hey, you go fight, yeah. you know? It'd be completely different if an empire wanted to go to war and the king had to fight the fight. Yeah, that's true. Or, or uh, you know, um, and I, I've heard it from Vietnam era guys, like I, I just delivered a pin to my one of my best friends. He served in Vietnam. Um, he had two tours. 
and they have a commemorative pin. It's got the eagle head and a little blue wreath and stuff on it. And it's for Vietnam veterans specifically. And uh, um, there's a letter signed by the president. And uh, uh, it's actually three presidents because it goes on for, it's like a five-year commemoration. So you, you have o- o- Obama, Trump, and, and uh, Biden signed these letters. So I gave my buddy the letter and the pin and was talking to him. And, uh, and he, he just kind of, he just told me, man, it, it, like I, I, it touched him, man. Like it, it still 50 years plus, and it hit him just this little symbol of somebody saying, Hey man, thank you. <laughs> this doesn't make up for it, but, but thank you. And I watched him get emotional and this dude is not emotional, man. He was one of the most hardcore dudes I've ever met in my life. And, uh, and it touched him in a way that. You know, you think that it's still going on. It's still happening, man. These guys have never been able to recover from that one thing, you know. And uh, you just you can't really compare. You just see the generational fold. Like you said, we, we grew up knowing it when we were kids, right? Like it didn't end until 74. I was born in 67, you know, and probably in 70, 71, I was aware of what was going on. You know, I was aware of, you know, all the funerals and all the, you know, the sadness, the moms just forever weeping, you know, for their children and uh, watching things change in society. And uh, that's kind of like the thing being reflective when I look at what I do today. And, and that's kind of one of the driving forces, you know, just talking to you about it out loud is, is it's probably why I am the way I am now, because I'm trying to prevent that. You know, um, you see the sadness. I, I watched, I watched them. Johnny Campbell was my dad's best friend. His mom, from the day he died, was totally checked out, introverted, stayed in her house, and just didn't want to just want to participate in society anymore. And I thought it was so sad because there was nobody there to help her, right? And uh, you know, the the kids growing up around each other, they kind of just leaned on each other, but that's all they had. You know, the veterans coming out of Vietnam, you see them today, they wear like a badge of honor, man. Right. You, you can spot a Vietnam veteran in a crowd. You can't spot an Iraq or Afghanistan veteran because they don't share it the same way, man. They're not, I wouldn't say they're not proud of it, but they're just not the same level of, um, and it's not even being patriotic. I just, I, I can't say why they're more quiet about it, right? They're like, I did my job. I don't want to talk about it. I did what I had to do. But to me, they're suffering the same way that the Vietnam guys are. Mm-hmm. Vietnam guys are, I think they wear like a uniform so they can identify with each other so they could spot each other in a crowd right away, make that connection and then kind of gravitate to each other. And, and so they can weave through the idiots that used to spit on them in airports and call them baby killers and stuff like that, who still exist to this day. But, you know, um, I, I, to me personally, I think that's why they do it, you know? Um, but, uh, it's kind of a weird phenomenon seeing, you know, like, you know, when you're talking to a Vietnam vet, you can you can see it right away. Um, Last question regarding you as a young boy, straight A's. Your dad wasn't for the military. Were your mom and dad pushing college, or what were their goals for you as an adult? You know, uh, now because the way my parents grew up, like neither of them graduated high school, right? So school wasn't a big push in my family. You know, my mom had me when she was seventeen. You know, my dad was was eighteen. 19, I think. And, uh, 
So my, my mom kind of dropped out of school because back then you're pregnant female in school. It's frowned upon and, you know. So they just found their own way. Um, they weren't really pushing school. My dad did. Let's, let's, let me say my dad did. Um, my dad, his thought, his train of thought was um, you better bring home homework every night. And he couldn't understand, like, I didn't have homework tonight. So I would literally bring shit home. That, <laughs> that I'd make up homework just to have so I can sit at a desk and show my dad that I'm doing something, you know, so I wouldn't get my butt kicked. And, uh, and uh, so my dad was pushing education that way. Um, but I think at some point he just figured, like, he would see my report cards and be like, I'm doing my job as a father. It's <laughs> like, you know, he didn't realize I, I couldn't stand that environment. I, I just hate, I detested school. And, uh, and, uh, I had another path picked. And then, so when I picked that path and went on it, he wasn't totally supportive of it initially. I think until they showed up to my graduation day from boot camp. then he got that fatherly pride and everything. And then after that, it was all in. Right. And then I think the other thing was I was one less mouth to feed, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so it's another thing that kind of helps out. And then, uh, later on in life, it's, uh, my dad became, and I became really, really close to this day. We still are. Um, and, uh, you know, strong supporter of everything I've done since, you know. So um, I, I think to answer your question, no, the school really wasn't really pushed, but uh, life was, you know, just live your life. You know, they, were, they were both pretty supportive of me just doing what I needed to do or what I was doing because they approved and they liked the path that I chose. How soon while you were in high school did you know you were going in the military? I, honestly, I think I made up my mind um, about joining the Navy when I was like seven or eight years old. I had an uncle that used to just, like, remember the old shows Victory at Sea and all the show the battleships just caught in just the worst storms and all the Navy battles and stuff? He was big into that, and I just, I thought it was cool, man. I, I, uh, I thought it was real cool. His son ended up joining the Army and uh, was station over in Germany. And so we compare careers and I say, you got to be in Germany. I got to go around the world, dude. So I'm, I'm glad I chose what I chose, you know? And, uh, I think in the, in the Navy it was the slogan was, it's not just a job, it's an adventure. Um, and they change it all the time, right. For marketing. But, uh, I, I had an adventure, man. My whole career in the Navy was an adventure. So it you graduated was, what year? High school, eight, what year? High school, 85. And straight in. Straight in. And going in, were you thinking career? No. I was Just thinking, an enlistment? I was thinking get away from the neighborhood. <laughs> That's all I was thinking, man. Get out of that and find out what's what's behind this door. That's literally it, you know. But you said previously your thought was, I'm going to do a tour, in, a stint in the Navy, mm -hmm. an enlistment, mm -hmm. and then come out and try the other branches. Yeah. I mean, that was a legitimate plan you had? Yeah. Yeah, if uh, you know, it's funny. I think life puts you where you're supposed to be at all times. Like, you can make plans for what you want to do and something and interrupt it, and you end up where you were supposed to be, right? Um, for most people, I believe that. Um, when I went in the Navy, it was kind of like um, I, I didn't have any guidance or anything, right? Because my, my dad definitely wasn't for it. My mom <laughs> didn't know, you know. She was working at Lockheed. You know, we were raised latchkey kids, both parents off work. And so you really didn't have that interaction or let's sit down and discuss your, your career path. What would you like to do? None of that. Right. So you had to figure out for yourself and being so young and not knowing really what I was getting into when I went in saw recruiter, I just went on my own. Right. And dude kind of pulled me into a job that they have to fill a billet. Right. 
and I was just fortunate. It was something that I like that I thought would be cool, right? I was a damage controlman, firefighter, basically in the Navy. I thought oh, I could do that, you know. I, uh, you know, that would be cool. It's not really what I wanted to do, um, but my ABSVAB score was just like at that cutoff where I could barely do that job, right? And I didn't know anything about studying for an ASVAB or any of that. And, you know, school, um, I wasn't really into school, so I didn't take anything seriously that way until I sat down and did the ASVAB. I thought, damn, should have paid more attention <laughs> in math, right? Right. Because the math is what killed me in the ASVAB. It just, just destroyed me. And, then, and I did okay with the rest, but not good enough to get any job I wanted in the Navy, right? So I had to settle. And uh, years later... I retook the ASVAB and because I was set to go in the Marine Corps as a Marine Corps reservist. And uh, the recruiter, I met him in the gym up in Palmdale when I was living up there. And, uh, you know, I hit him up, said, dude, I want to be a reservist. He goes, dude, you got to retake the ASVAB. I'm like, damn, I'm not good at that. He goes, just study a little bit, man. You'll get it. And so I got that book, uh, ASVAB for Idiots. I studied it. I just read through it one time. I uh, went and took the, the, the ASVAB. And he called me up later and he's like, dude, you're, you're a rock, aren't you? He's like, man, he's like, seriously, dude? And I was like, yeah, was that bad? He goes, no, I'm just kidding, man. He goes, you scored a 98. Bro. Yeah, they want to make you an astronaut. Yeah, yeah. he goes, you scored a 98. You can have any job you want, man. So just come back and we'll pick it. And then right after that, I got in a car accident and broke my back. And you know, I, couldn't, I couldn't go, you know? So I was like, that's what I mean about fate. Just you have intention of moving this way and then you get pulled a different direction. Um, but yeah, man, I was set up, but you know, it's funny. I was like totally redeemed. Like I'm not as stupid as I thought all this time. Right. Cause I scored like a 60 on the ASVAB the first time and I got a, a 98 this time. Right. And I, I feel like I've been so far removed from school. It just wasn't school. It was the prep for going into something. Right. And so I learned about that too. It's, you know, no matter what you're doing in life, like I tell my kid, my kids, you know, have a plan, man. But then also prep for it, you know, prep for that interview, prep for that sit down with somebody, you know, rehearse, plan, study, and then go do it, right? Just don't do it cold because it's probably not going to come out the way you think it is, you know. And then, then that'll be just another mark against you that you created, right? Like another letdown, but you let yourself down kind of thing. Um, so, you know, I learned about that just in that process but yeah man i was gonna go in the marine corps first because i just i was on a lph which is a helicopter carrier we had 2500 marines on my ship like 600 ships company navy and i got along with the marines just as good as i got along with the navy guys and uh it was a lot of fun you know we used to fight with the pugil sticks and you know i'd be on watch walking around and they'd be doing the repelling out of the hell hole and i didn't feel like going down the stairs so i'd be with my clipboard and i'd, I'd hook on and <laughs> zip down the line and they'd get pissed and you know but uh one of the there's a marine corps major at the time he was a helicopter pilot um and my dad had a my dad got sick when we were off the coast of san clemente doing exercise he flew me back to um, the mainland so I can go see my dad in the hospital. And then when I came back after my dad was stable and everything was good, I came back, he picked me up in the helicopter and we took a ride, you know, he let me fly the helicopter and stuff like that. It was cool. And uh, he was like, he, he was telling me, they call me Bojo. And he was like, Bojo, you should have been a Marine. He's like, what the hell's wrong with you, man? Why'd you join the Navy? Why'd you want to be a squid? You know, he's just talking smack. And I was like, hey, sir, that's next. You know, and he's like, oh, are you sure? He, he goes, you better make sure you can do, still do the, the 
the P PT portion, and he used to do the PFTs for our ship. And I said, sir, I could do anything your guys could do. <laughs> and and he's like, he's like, you think so? He said, yeah, but we do it in boots and utes. You guys do it in your dolphin shorts and your running shoes, right? And he's just like clowning. I said, you give me boots and utes and I'll do it. And uh, I, I met his challenge. I broke all the records they had. And after that, this guy was heavy just trying to get me to stay. You know, trying to get me to, to enlist in the Marine Corps. Go, I'd have to go through boot camp again. He was prepping me and stuff. But at the same time, that's when I, I applied for the Sheriff's Department. And I want to get into that. But yeah. So coming towards the end of your your enlistment in the Navy, what made you start looking at law enforcement? Why not just, like, head down, all right, I'm going to the Marine Corps next? High school friend of mine, I went home to visit him, and uh, it was the day he graduated from, from the Sheriff's Academy. And... Uh, Get me the recruitment card and stuff, and uh, um, I had actually he gave me his. And at the time, I was I, I was thinking about it, and I'd already inquired with LAPD, so I was doing both at the same time, right? Um, but uh, it, it was it was basically my high school friend, man. He just he said, "Hey, I you know I just graduated academy, you know he was you know he's all fit and yoked and you know looking good and." You know, and then he pulls a gun out of his pants. He's like, you know, like, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, it's like I was in the Navy, so they didn't let us have guns, you know. So uh, I thought that was cool. You know, being a kid still, you know, mind you, I was I was still, I think at the time when I when I visited him, I, was, I just turned 20. And uh, and I got out of the Navy when I, I just, when I turned 21 and went into uh, in, into this profession. Did you start the testing process for law enforcement while you were still active? Yeah. I did. They had a uh, what they called an out-of-state testing program at the time, and it qualified for people in the military. Even though I wasn't out-of-state because I was in the military, I did all my testing in five days. So I just and and how I got to do that was I came home home on what's called Harp Duty Home Area Recruiting Program. Um, I just found out about it through a friend on the ship, and it allows you to stay home for two weeks in your hometown, and then you help the local recruiters recruit kids to go in the military there. So I met up with his Navy chief and I told him what I was doing. He goes, man, if you get me two guys, all you got to do is call me every morning. You can do what you want. So that, that literally that day I got them five guys <laughs> and I showed up and, and they all enlisted and two of them, I pulled out of my old neighborhood, you know, cause they needed it. Right. And, um, met his quota like a plus, right. And cause they do have quotas and uh, he let me go, and so I was able to do the testing for the department in five days. And then I was just in backgrounds. I think I had like nine months to go of my commitment to the Navy. And uh, when I got out in uh, September of 89, um, I, I was hired like almost right away um, on the off-the-street off program. And then I uh, went in the academy in uh, December or uh, January. Yeah. And... Looking back on it, so you grew up in Atwater. That's LAPD's jurisdiction, yeah. correct? Yeah. No interest in LAPD? Hell no. Yeah. I mean, a little bit just because it was law enforcement. Um, there was a, there was a, uh, this is where I understand both sides of the coin. You know, um, growing up in the neighborhood I grew up in, not being a gangster, but seeing how the police interacted with gangsters. On, on one hand, I was glad because some of those guys needed what they got. But on the other hand is you get caught up as just like an innocent bystander with that when they can't separate the two. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I was, you know, I walked through my neighborhood and I didn't look like a gangster at all. I had long hair wearing OP shorts and the Hawaiian t-shirt, man. I, you know, I didn't have the gangster dress and, uh, they'd pull you over and, uh, 
kind of do an interrogation. I remember one time, man, it was, uh, there, there was two times in my life where a gangster actually saved, saved my life. It's funny. It's, it's funny to say, but he did. One time he saved me from gang members, and the other time he saved me from the police from LAPD. Same guy? Yeah, same guy. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was kind of funny the way it happened. Uh, um, There's this one officer in, in LAPD. I won't mention his name because, you know, who knows what happened to him now and what course his life led, you know. But uh, uh, he used to be pretty brutal. And uh, one time he and his partner jammed me up. I was coming up from the local park. uh you know, just walking and, and they pulled me over and, you know, jammed me up, put me in the back seat of their unmarked car. And it was just a soft back seat. And, and this guy was in the back seat with me and his partner was sitting in the passenger seat, kind of turned around facing me. And I'm on the, I'm behind the driver's seat in the back seat. Right. And he's asking me questions. And, and I was like, you know, whenever I gave him a, like a negative, like I didn't know or whatever, um, he, he had his baton in his hand. He popped me on top of the head you know, and, and then my eyes were just, man, my eyes were watering and I was like, damn. And, uh, I thought, you know, I said, you know, screw these guys. Like, like it made me not like cops, you know, not in general, but these two for sure. Um, and there was a knock at the, at the window and it was just one of these gang members. Like if you had to describe, describe the biggest dude, like, you know, cause like Hispanic people, Mexicans in particular, aren't that big. Right. This guy probably would have been the king of the Mexicans. Like he was big, man, and and he was used to going to prison. And back then, in the prison yards, they had iron weights and stuff. And so when he got out, he was just like like Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of guy, but taller, just a big guy. And they called him Big Psycho, and it's a funny name, right? And but he knocked on the window, and the guy rolled down the window and said, "What do you want?" And he goes, "Hey, uh, just let you know that he ain't one of us, man. He's not a gang member. That's Art's kid." And if he sees you doing that to his kid, he's going to kill you both. Because everybody, my dad had just like a reputation. My dad was not a gang member. Didn't like him. Everybody knew it, but they all respected him. And um, and and then the cop looks at me and goes, why don't you tell me who your dad was? And I was like, you didn't you, ask. You didn't ask, man, you know. And so they let me out of the car, and that was that, right? But then during the same summer, that's when all my friends, we used to go to the corner, the corner lot and play wiffle ball, baseball because you don't want to hit the ball all the way out of the thing because nobody wanted to get it. And I just remember, like, over three summers, we had, like, a, you know, full-on two teams against each other, and then the next summer would be a little less, and then the last summer would be, like, me and one other guy showed up, and it was kind of like everybody else was getting sucked into that gang life. So all my friends that I had grown up with were now, you know, hardcore, you know, in a gang, and they were somebody's, right? And uh, – they were trying to pull me in too. And I remember one guy, one of my friends in particular, Mark used to always hit me up, man. And we'd, we'd fight and I'd, I'd beat his ass. And then he'd go get two of his friends and then he'd beat my ass. And then I'd catch them individually and beat their asses. Right. And so this went on back and forth, not knowing that the whole time somebody's watching, it was that guy, big psycho. And, uh, so one time my mom sent me to the store to get cigarettes for her. Remember when you could do that? They write, no, yeah, here, please sell my kids some cigarettes. Yep. And, uh, that's what I was doing. And, uh, I got my mom's cigarettes and I'm coming out of the local, local corner liquor store right there on the corner. And, uh, there's big cycle just standing right in front of me, man. And he put his big hand on my chest and pushed me against the wall. He says, he says, he goes, Hey, stay right there. You know, he told me in his gruff voice and I was like, damn, I'm going to get killed. And so he starts whistling. He starts bringing all these kids around. And they did like a half circle, you know, semi-circle around me. 
and uh, he's got me there, and he's he, he, and he, he, you know, I'm thinking, oh man, he's gonna have these kids just kick my ass, right? And he tells him, he goes, hey, see this kid right here? He's gonna be somebody. Any of you kids mess with him, I'll kill you. He's got a free pass. Do not mess with him. He's not gonna be one of us. Don't try and make him one of us. And that's it. <laughs> and that was it. And he says, all right, youngster. He goes, good job. I've seen you, man. You you hold your own. You know, he's like, I, I got his respect. He's like, he goes, you know, you'll be all right. And then, and then he's like, like, like he motioned so, so I could leave, but the guys were still standing there and he's like, get the F out of his way, you know? And, and they parted ways and, you know, I left and went and gave my mom her cigarettes and I was just thinking about that. But for the rest of that summer, every time I saw one of these guys that were now gangsters, they just say, hey, what's up, Rich? You know, like, no problem. Like not even an issue anymore. So I didn't have that pressure of any more of do I join a gang or what do I do? Right. He, he paved the way for me, man. He let, he, he let them all know and everybody believed this guy. Uh, I think he's one of the most feared guys in the neighborhood at the time that you know, anybody messed with him, I'll, I'll kill you. And I think he was serious. Like he was serious. And then he would catch me once in a while. He's like, man, you're in good shape. You know, I see you running all the time and this and that. And he goes, man, that's good. Keep doing it. You know? And, uh, and he was, I think uh, even at the time he goes, man, you should think about going to the military. I think he said the army. And I was like, well, you know, it's funny you should say that, you know, <laughs> kind of, I already planned on going to the Navy, but I didn't, I didn't tell him anything. I just, I just said, thanks, man. I appreciate it. And then, you know, just went about my business and then don't even know what happened to him. You know, um, you know, I think most of the people from a neighborhood are, are dead. You know, most of the kids I grew up with are dead. Um, it's not a lifestyle that you find many senior citizens. No, not at all. I mean, you know, with the, everything going against you, you know, not only just the gangbanging lifestyle, but then everything that comes with that, you know, the drugs was a big thing. And uh, in, in my neighborhood at the time, you know, the kids were smoking PCP. That was scary as hell, man. Just seeing like live zombies walking around the neighborhood you know, as a kid, that's terrifying. And then heroin was a big deal, you know, for a lot of the guys. I mean, that's what took most of them out. It wasn't even the gangbanging lifestyle. It was the heroin just, right. you know, overdose and stuff. But, uh, man, I was, uh, I was fortunate enough to, to number one, have the dad that I had to, you know, scare me away from that lifestyle and then just have the avenue to be able to go into something else, like join the Navy. That was, that was honestly my life, my whole life to this day has been a blessing. You know, it's like somebody had their hand in it the whole time, you know, so. And you, for the cops listening, we, we can't forget that every one of our interactions as a cop has an impact. You talk about one, one particular, but a very poignant contact with LAPD when it came time to look at law enforcement agencies you're like no not yeah. even not even gonna look there yeah. because of an interaction with one of their officers that's all it took um I almost if it wasn't for years later talking to my buddy I almost was just gonna just re-enlist like I said and just go to the Marine Corps and make the service my life right um and uh so there was there was nobody along the way that ever redeemed that and nobody. Um, there were, when I was growing up, you know, even the Burbank cops, they were just all hardcore, just kind of like when I was going to school, um, there was never like anybody with a positive interaction towards the youth, towards kids. You know, I don't think at the time they realized that, that people actually were looking up to them. And at the time were kind of like, they were 
consider heroes without the campaign or without the, you know, people actually saying it. Like I knew they had a rough job and that they had to deal with a lot of crap and, and, you know, you, you do knew you knew the uh, the cool cops. They they had just that way of dealing with everybody. They were cool. Um, they treated you with respect or whatever, but didn't go out of their way to kind of like um, to create a, a relationship or to kind of like inspire you to be like them. It almost seemed like they were just like you know, don't do what I do, you know, because right. this shit is rough and it's not a good th- it's not a good choice to to not a good career to enter. But then you had those other ones that were just just idiots, man. You could tell they were high. like I always said is is my badge isn't who I am. It's what I do. Like I don't stand behind my badge. I stand in front of it. I represent that badge. You know that badge doesn't make me who I am. I make it what it is, and I re- represent it well because that's who I am. But you have people that get a badge and don't know who they are, and that becomes them. Right? That shield becomes like. Like Captain America's shield, man, and they hide behind it because they don't have the ability to talk outside of it or to relate. And so, when you're dealing with somebody in crisis, or you're dealing with somebody you don't, you have, you do not have a clue about. You're dealing with them from a position of authority rather than just being just being human. You know, you're barking at them, orders, knife hands. I have the authority, and then when they call you on it, you don't know what to do, so you react in a way that you know you, when you catch it on video, it looks like looks stupid, right? Um, you know, I'll just say that not, not trying to slam my brother and sister in law enforcement, but we could be doing a lot better job than what we've been doing. But I just don't think the managers ever had the wherewithal or the, the ability to figure out what we're, what we're talking about. And you and I both know what we're talking about, um, because of what we do currently with people. And, uh, you know, it'd be nice to teach people that you don't have to stand on authority whenever you're dealing with people, man. You don't have to do it all the time. No, not all the time. There's a time and place for it, but uh, most of the time you don't, man. If you just show them your heart, like, I I think people consider that a weakness. Like, oh, I can't be weak. Well, you're already weak if you think that, you know? It's like, you can be whoever you want to be. If the time comes where you got to fight, then fight. You know, that doesn't mean you, you have to fight all the time. But if the time comes where you have to hold somebody in your in in your arms and get them through whatever they're going through, do that too. Why not? You know, that means you're stronger because then you don't give a shit what any any of your buddies think about you. They can't pressure you into being somebody you're not. They can't get you go to go down a road you never intended on going down because you already stand strong in your own two feet. You know, and and uh, I think that's what just the way I grew up, the household, all the. You know, being in the Navy, seeing things and going through and experiencing things I did, um, that allows me to be who I am to the day. I've never changed. From the day I graduated the academy to this day, I have not changed. You ask anybody that's known me for 30 years, I'm the same guy because that's my core values, my principles, my morals. You know, I'm not going to compromise myself. I'm not going to I can do something. St- who do I have to impress? You know, I think more young cops need to understand you, you got to know who you are going into that job. Then you'll never be compromised. If you know who you are and you stand strong and you just do what's right, you'll never have issues. You never have problems, you know, and I think things will be easier for you as you mature. I don't think it could be said better than how you put it. At the end of the day, just be who you are. If, yeah. if you're Bob, you're Bob. Yeah. And you happen to wear a uniform at work. Yeah. Not be, 
I wear a uniform and Bob is underneath that uniform. Yeah. If you're if if you go through your daily life and just remember we're all just people. Treat people how you would want to be treated. You'll and it, it sounds so cliche, but it works. It, it's you got to understand your your uniform doesn't keep you from forming a relationship. That's the end to go everywhere you were never invited, right? Like you're somewhere. Let's say you're breaking up a party. Do you have to be an authoritative guy, or can you just be like, "Hey, man, what's going on?" You know, and and like get to know people and kind of remember what it was like when you yeah, were there when you were being kicked out, right? <laughs> like because we were all in that situation, man. The first time you pull that nervous teen, man. Yeah, you can go full on book on them and be like, "Yeah." just the facts and you know i'm in the right but you can also say man <laughs> hey bro you're going you're going a little too fast or whatever you're doing man knock that off man yep. pay attention whatever get off your damn phone and let them go let them go you know i'm not a i'm not a stat machine for my county i don't you know they got other ways to create revenue i don't have to be the one i, I want to be an ambassador for my county you know for for what i do for the for the people that i represent and and the people i meet man i want to be the guy they they can trust and call you know, like, hey, I'm having problems. I didn't want to call 911 because I don't trust who might come. Right. And that's a shame because I've had a lot of those calls, you know. When you when you can't call 911 because you don't trust who's going to respond, there's an issue there, man. That's a problem, you know. And thank God I've formed relationships every in every community I've ever worked where they have my personal number. And then I get those calls. And if I'm not on duty or I'm not available, I got to call somebody I trust that won't screw it up. You know, and so it kind of like becomes a network within a network, right? Um, but if we had it right from the get-go, then people would just call 911, and everybody responding would respond the same way with compassion, you know, with, with, you know, treating people with dignity and caring, like really caring. And to me, this isn't, this isn't cliche, man. This is just very basics of the way I see things is when you're dealing with somebody, that could be my mom, my dad, my little brother, my sister. And if you're dealing with... With people like that, you know, how you treat people matters. And if you're treating people like that, you have no business. You know, if you're treating them wrong, hey, go do something else, you know, because you're fortunate to be in a profession where you can make a difference on your very first contact. The words you say, the actions you take are really going to matter. Now, there's that other side, right? The law enforcement where, hey, you got somebody doing something dirty, and but, you know, um, one example that was funny, I uh, I got caught, right? Like, got caught slipping, let's say. The, the thing any any law enforcement officer you, you never want to hear is when you're at a gas pump on your day off and you got your three-year-old in the car, you don't want to hear, you don't want to hear, hey, deputy, from behind you. And, like, it sends chills through your body because you don't know what the hell the next thing is going to happen, right? And I had that moment uh, one time at a gas station in Palmdale, and, and I turn around, I was like, damn, and there's this, this young black man, I'm looking at him. He's like, he goes, yeah, he goes, uh, uh, you might not remember me, but I remember you. I was like, Hey, what's going on, man? You know? And I was kind of like, like, like getting ready, right? Like, where's this going to go? He goes, Hey man, I uh, just want you to know, look at man. I got a new car. My life is good. Um, I got my kids back. I got an apartment. Like he was, he wanted to tell me about his life. And I was like, Hey man, I'm sorry. I don't really remember you. Um, and he was like, no, you, uh, you arrested me one time and it wasn't about the arrest. What I did, I did. He goes, I don't even think you were the one arresting me. You were the, the guy that transported me to the station. Um, he goes, the talk you had with me on the way to the station is what mattered. 
and uh You know, I I didn't know that you could impact somebody like that. I feel you. I, I get it, you know, and and we've all been in that situation. Every one of us can stop for a moment and think about that time that they've jammed somebody up yeah. and the person was immediately 415 with them. Yeah. But we never stop to think, are they just reacting to how the last cop treated them? Probably. You know, and yeah. that's one of the things we don't think going forward. Yeah. You know, you you've experienced... The, the positive side of it. Hey, somebody, I, I listened to what you said and it impacted me and I, I, yeah. I'm improving my life. But at the same token, if you'd have been an asshole with him, you might have not have experienced it, but how would the next deputy be treated by that guy? Yeah. You know? And, so, and, and it's funny because I think, you know, like I said, I've, I've been the same person. I deal with everybody like that. That's why he didn't really stick out to me. He had to kind of remind me. But, but I just think, had I been one of those guys, just, pure authority, asshole, you know, you listen to me, you know, I'm the guy, you know, I control your, your fate right now. How much different would it have been? Cause he caught me slipping, man. I didn't, I didn't even see him. Didn't hear him. He was right there behind me. How much would have been different? You sure. know? So I always think of things like that. I think, damn, you know, and, and it doesn't, that doesn't motivate me to do what I do any differently. It just reaffirms it. Yeah. It just kind of like, Oh, that's cool. You know, that's cool. Like, what did I tell you, man? And he, you know, he explained to me and I was like, oh yeah, that's pretty much what I would say. You know, I'm like, I don't have a, 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 a canned speech for people or nothing. I just kind of like, what's your issue? And, you know, it's easier to see other people's problems sometimes, you know, um, and just kind of like give advice, I guess, you know, uh, I like, I tell people like sometimes our problems are right here where your hands right in front of your face where you can't see around it. And all you need is a way just to push it out just a right. little bit. And you problem still there, but it's now like four feet away from your eyes. You can see everything around it. Now you still see your problem, but you can see other things. Right. And, and then eventually you push that all like all the way down the hallway. Now, now it's a hallway's like the way it's problem still there. It's not as big as it used to be when it was right here in front of your face. And, uh, you know, um, that's just kind of, I think that's what I told him and just told him, you know, just figure out, don't focus on you and your problems so much that you, you're crippled, you know, and you can't do anything. You you can still function, man. You just got to find a way around that, you know, that, that you have in your vision right there, push it away a little bit and then, then you'll see what's around you and take that in. And then that'll help you push it even further away. Problem sometimes never goes away. You know, but it becomes really small to where it's not so significant in your life, right? And uh, you know, it's kind of, I think that's what I told him. And, you know, um, I'm glad he was able to get good, you know. Uh, I think the biggest victory for me was that he got his kids back and got himself back on his feet. And, you know, he told me he got a job, he got a new car, you know, used car, but it was new to him. And uh, living in an apartment instead of staying with friends and constantly in that life, you know. Um, so that was one of the, one of the small victories you get, you know, uh, doing this job, um, that right there in that incident means more to me than anything. Anybody can hang on my chest, you know, hang around my neck, any of that. I, I don't need, I don't, I don't get my, um, satisfaction or gratitude or whatever. I don't, I don't get that from awards or rewards, accommodations or something kind of old school. It's like, I don't. I don't need a pat on the back for what I do. 
just need support so I can keep doing it, you know. The good ones, in my opinion, all that they worry about is tomorrow when they're gone, the people that are still hanging around and they're always going to be hanging around were like, hey, he or she was one of the good ones. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what makes it all worthwhile at the end. Yeah, it does. It, it does. And, and e- even then, it, it's, it's more for me like, like the team I have now. It's, it's, uh, I could have retired last year. Um, but uh, I, I feel now what I'm doing, it's more, if I leave, who's going to do it. Right. And truly like at this point of what we started and what we created, there's, there, nobody can do what we're doing. Like this came from doing it alone for three years and then growing and then getting people's buy-in and getting support and building something out of it. And then now that it's grown, we're laying a foundation can't walk away when you lay the foundation, man. The walls still need to go up. The roof needs to be on. The, you know, the, it needs to be built completely before you can move in and occupy it. And then, then you start changing things around and decorating and making it yours, kind of like a house, right? But, uh, yeah, man, I uh, I talked to some friends of mine, and, and they all tell me, why don't you retire, man? Why don't you retire? And honestly, and, and not to be, I don't know. I don't like saying this, but this is the way I think, right, is, if I leave, pe- people will die. Like that's a huge thing on my on my heart, you know, on my shoulders. Is this is the first time in my career I've been in this situation? Like I could have left when I left gangs. I knew people were going to die, but it wasn't because of what I was or wasn't doing. You know, it wasn't it was because they kept changing the rules and nobody had that figured out. Nobody had it, you know, to the point where you know what you're going to do every day is going to say help save somebody's life or at least get them to the people who can create a pathway or open a door for them. Um, it's kind of, I was thinking about it on the way here is it's kind of like, let's say you were a scientist and you discovered a cure for a cancer, one cancer, right? But, but it was the most, you know, let's say it was colon cancer or whatever, just something that just really takes a lot of people out. And you take that and you go running with it and you go, Hey, I've discovered the cure. And then nobody wants to hear it. Nobody supports it. You know, you get a lot of ego involved and they're like, well, because it didn't come to, from me, they just kind of push it aside. Um, that was kind of the fight I was fighting with regards to what we're doing right now for veterans and for people in crisis and especially suicidal veterans. Um, we kind of have discovered with a group of guys that I've been working with and the people I work with uh, at the VA and my team is, is uh, we found beyond what psychologists and psychiatrists and, you know, that whole mental health field uh, have found, we found a cure or at least one of them, right. For that part of it. And uh, I, I can't, I can't walk away from it right now, you know? So that's why we were talking about fitness and health. I mean, I'm not, fit right now i'm not healthy right now but uh i have to get myself that's just another thing that's like oh man if you want to be in it longer you got to equip yourself to to be in it longer right Right. and uh, that's kind of why i started getting back into boxing and doing that just just for health pure health purposes but uh for longevity so i can keep going you know so you obviously have a major transition from law enforcement yet you're still working yeah but what i really want to talk to you about you've you've kind of alluded to it the program that you got going now, talk to me about its inception, kind of what got the ball rolling, you know, and, and what it's grown to today. Yeah. Um, so I, um, I joined the, our, our, 
our mental evaluation team um, back in 2017. And, uh, you know, it was just how that came about was uh, uh, I wanted to go a different path, right? I was going to go to our aero unit, and that was where my passion was, man. I just I wanted to be in, in a helicopter and fly and do that. And uh, one of the guys at work, I, I had a, a string of good luck when I was at East L.A., um, just the people that were real difficult that were in the cells, didn't want to come out, you know, wanted to fight and were just that kind of, you know, situation. I always, always had like hundred percent, not one of them did I not, wasn't able to make a connection with and get them to come out peacefully and then either, you know, go where they had to go or just be cool. Right. And, uh, one of the other guys I worked with said, man, you got a knack for that. You should, you should consider going to, to the Met teams. And uh, I was like, yeah, we've had a Met team, you know, on my department, the Met team's been around for 30 years, um, but they were largely um, ineffective because they weren't, nobody really went all in because quite frankly, even when I was in the, in the 90s, when I was a street cop, um, mental health wasn't an issue, right? It, you had those, those 19 kind of, you know, 5150, whatever you want to call it. Um, you had them in the street, but it was like, well, you get them once in a while. It wasn't right. a common thing. Um, fast forward to now is it's three times a day, four times a day on every shift at every station in every part of the County. And so that grew, right? Um, so what happened was me growing up in the department, our met teams were, yeah, if they were available, you used them, but you didn't really need them. We all knew how to write holds and stuff like that and deal with this. Um, but as it started growing, they started changing the tra trajectory of what they were doing, how they were doing it. Um, I, I give full credit to a guy named, uh, he's a commander now in our department, John Gannon. This guy was like the mastermind behind Met's growth. Even though a team existed for three years, it existed on a uh, barely functional level. It, there was no innovation involved in it. There was no, you know, thinking outside the box. It was just, eh, put the teams on the street to go out, deal with people with mental illness. Um, John Gannon really devised a way to make a more uh, effective and positive change. And he really, like, amped up the co-response model because I don't know if you know the MET teams, uh, it's a mental evaluation team. It's a co-response model of a, a deputy sheriff and a department of mental health clinician riding together. And the objective is to um, affect the outcome of, like, if, if it's a patrol cop dealing with somebody who's mentally ill, and they're still dealing with them live, then we get there at the same time they do or, or around the same time, we can affect the outcome of that call, right? Kind of reduce the possibility of, of these shootings that we see sometimes. But most of the time, they're kind of already detained, and we'll get them. And then um, John's vision was alternative to an incarceration, even way back then, is um, it'd be better off, they'd be better served in a program that helps deal with their mental illness than going to jail. Because everybody knows incarceration not the answer for some of the mental illness. It, it exacerbates it and makes it worse. Um, so we started developing, just as a MET unit, better ways to do that kind of thing. Get these people that need it into the proper care and treatment that they deserve. That would better serve society as a whole. And then while doing that, um, we, we discovered that there was a huge population of veterans out there, namely uh, a lot of veterans suffering mental illness, uh, a lot of them drug addicted, you know, alcohol and, and homeless type thing. And so uh, uh, 
uh, John kind of put me on task. He put me in this, uh, this group. It was the, uh, the Marist challenge, um, for suicide prevention, LA Marist challenge for suicide prevention. And it's a group of individuals that I was fortunate enough to, to meet and become friends with. These are kind of like the all, all the forward thinkers of everything veteran related in today's society, you know, and, uh, got, uh, Dr. Dr. Sharon Berman, she's the chief of suicide prevention out of uh, West LAVA. Um, Jim Zenner, he's now the director of the Military Veterans Affair out of Bob Hope Patriotic Hall. I had uh, Robert Alvarez from uh, Catherine Barker's office and uh, Dave Weiner. Uh, he was the chief of police for the uh, Long Beach VA. Uh, he's since left and made his own company, Secure Measures. Um, this, these individuals that I got with, I got to know them. And... Uh, um, they kind of mentored me in my tests and what I was seeing, right? Like, uh, again, just thinking, here's a problem. What's the solution? Like there's a need, how do we meet it? Right. Kind of thing. Just very basic on my end, like, cause I'm not clinical and I don't, I don't speak the same language. These people <laughs> I met, mentioned do, they're very smart people. Um, I'm just, your words don't have seven syllables in them. No, <laughs> no. I, yeah. What's a syllable, you know, <laughs> but no, I, I, uh, I'm telling you, these are just talented people. But the thing I noticed that they had the heart, they had the heart and they wanted to help on a different level. But what I noticed, man, is, is everybody in the clinical field is restricted by what they call the DSM five. Now it's a DSM five, which is the manual, like the Bible for mental health. And so I saw that, yeah, we can do crisis response and get them to a hospital, but I've never seen, and I don't think anybody's able to ever tell me, because I've asked this question all the time, have you ever seen a 5150 hold actually help anybody, or did it solve the problem that was happening right there at the time? Because you take them, you put them on a hold, and it's a, it's a mental health hold for 72 hours, so you could be seen by a psychiatrist, you know, and dealt with. What, however they do it, right, whether it's medication or a longer time with counseling or whatever it is, right? Um, but eventually they get out, and then what, what I've kind of coined was this, I've noticed this revolving door of mental health incarceration, just constantly going back. And, and I'll tell you what, if you're going to put me in, in one of the two systems, right, like let's just say my life takes a turn sometime in the future, and you're going to tell me, you know, would you want to either go in the mental health system or would you rather go to prison? I'll pick prison because prison is something you can come out of. Prison is something you can go on parole. That's behind you. Have more support in the community for prisoners than you do people with mental illness. And if you get stuck in that thing, man, you know, prisoners eventually get their rights back. Prisoners eventually get their lives back and they can live a, a fulfilled life, you know, later. People with mental illness is are so stigmatized in that system and the the mechanism for getting them out of it doesn't exist because for me personally and what i've seen is it's incentivized to keep it going um department of mental health as good as they are um and the people i work with that are on our team assigned to our team are fantastic people they are very compassionate and caring but they're regulated again by a mechanism that says when we take this person we have to bill for that before when they built for the they would be reimbursed through the the government at a certain percentage right um and and i may be wrong now because i I remember it changed during covid i don't know if it changed back but i know that for a time being they're getting a hundred percent reimbursement for everybody they deal with 
meaning they're getting paid in full. So their only incentive is to keep billing. And we would see the same customer, the same patient, the same client, whoever, whatever you want to say, over and over and over again to this day. And so the mechanism that was lacking was, where's the follow-up? Even though they say they do the follow-up, but it's still a clinical follow-up. And so there was one, a, a few cases that I was able to get into in developing this thing that had an impact in the way we're functioning to this day. Um, and uh, one of them, a uh, guy named Kevin, I'll just say his first name, um, he was the number one utilizer of 911 services in all of LA County. And that's both for fire and police. Um, probably saw him on an average of probably four times a week, maybe three or four times a week or, or, you know, more or less it fluctuates, but on average is about four times a, a week or every two weeks. I forget what the stats were, but he, he, literally hundreds and hundreds of calls to this guy's house. It was all, you know, suicide by cop. It was all, you know, potential for violence. You know, the right mixture was there. And uh, when I first got funding for my team, the VMET team, which we deal with veterans now, um, when I first got funding for that, um, they funded me, but then I didn't get personnel, right? And so this guy was rotating through the system, rotating through the system for like three years. Nobody could figure out, nobody could help him. And what kind of got me going uh, was a comment that a doctor made. One of my guys who's now on my team, he wasn't at the time, uh, but eventually came to my team, um, said so he was taking this guy to the hospital, and a doctor looks at him and goes, you're not dead yet? I thought you'd be dead by now. I'm thinking, you know, here's a medical professional whose job is to save people's lives, who's supposed to be looking out for them, and his only hope is that this guy dies. He's become such a, you know, a problem for everybody that they didn't know what to do with him. So that was my first task when I got the first two members of my team was, hey, let's save this guy's life. Everybody wants him to die. I want him to live, and I have a few ideas. And so our ideas have nothing to do with any kind of mental health manual, any kind of psychiatric, you know, response or, or input or anything. It was the same thing you do when you form a relationship with somebody, you know, you, you make a bond with them, you, you show them that you, they, they can trust you. You show up for them when they need you. And eventually they understand that you love them. And once they understand that, that's hope, man. It, they get hope back. Right. And you can see them change. And we did see them change. Um, this guy, uh, Kevin, for the year that we've had him in this program working it, not one called 911, totally back into his life, like living, thriving, uh, formed his own media company, um, doing just amazing things. He had little struggles here and there, but it's still the, my team has all been, we kind of rallied around this guy. So he's I, a veteran? He's a veteran, yeah. He's a Navy veteran. He's a doc employed with the Marines in the field. So he had a lot of trauma in his, in his military career, right? That brought demons. And, uh, and uh, it's, it's kind of funny because he, he has my personal number. He has, you know, everybody on the team. That's the way I work. If you deal with me, you don't get my county. You get my personal number because I want a relationship with you, man. I, I want to be real to you and be honest with you. And no matter what your trauma or what your problem is, doesn't matter. We'll, we'll get through it. Right. If, if you let me help you. Right. And, uh, like I said earlier on, but you got to do all the work. You know, there's only so much I could do. If you're not willing to work, it's not going to work, right? Um, I could take you to the door. I could knock on the door. I can open for you, but you got to walk in and do the work. 
so with Kevin, it was it was it was kind of like that. And for a year, um, we developed this bond, this relationship. We're friends, man. Like, you know, he'll uh, he'll tell me he was giving me updates. You know, this is my six months over, my seven months over, my eight years, eight months over. He had his year anniversary, and just prior to his year anniversary, his girlfriend of fifteen years never left him, never left his side through all the trauma, all the stuff. He was he calls me up and says, Bojo, uh, you know. We want to get married, but it's too expensive. I can't afford it right now, you know. So what part can't you afford? He goes, I need somebody to marry us. And I said, I'll come up and do it, bro. I got one of those universal life church things. I can do it. So it was funny. I took some of the guys up with me um, from the the VA that had also been working with him um, and uh, performed the wedding ceremony and got him legally married. He filed the paperwork. um, And... uh, you know, because he got married, his wife was able to, his now wife was able to get his benefits also because he's hundred percent service connected and, uh, they're thriving even more. He picked out his, he picked out his home. Dude's getting a home, right? Very cool. Through a veteran program, picked out his home. He's showing me it on the map. They're building it now to be ready this time next year. But I, I, I and he, he even comments, he goes, man, this time I, I would never have thought this could happen in my life. Right. And so I thought, that's the magic sauce right there, man. The, the things we did with this guy and with a couple of guys previous, the way we go about it has nothing to do with that. It's not in anybody's books. It doesn't exist. It comes straight out of the heart. And um, I, I think that's that's what makes it work, right, is how far you're willing to go. You know, um, if you're going to remain stoic and, and you're, you're going to put, you know, barriers up, and you never allow your true self to shine through and, and get to somebody else, to another human being, and have that impact on them. Um, I don't think you can be successful. I think you you'll keep taking them on those holds and keep taking them on hospitals and dealing with it on a professional level, right? Like this is my job. What we do kind of goes beyond your job, even though it is a job. We get paid for it, but it's it's not why we do it, right? And that's the other thing. Um, yeah. We got him into programs. We, you know, performed his wedding ceremony. We got him a dog, a therapy dog, you know, doing stuff like that. And this was these the, the individuals on my team going the extra mile because they saw it the same way I saw it at the time. And they were all in, too. And that's how it worked. And then even the folks at the VA, we have uh, part of our team is we're, we're joined up with the, the VA PD who has a MET team. Um, and, uh, their met team is, is kind of modeled the same way ours is. And so we work in, in a task force model where we roll to each other's calls to each other's, you know, incidents when they get a call from suicide prevention or, or a caregiver saying, Hey, there's somebody out in, you know, downtown LA or whatever has to, needs a response. I'll send my guys or my guys will go get their guys and they'll roll out together. And it's kind of been the magic because now we have, we have it worked out all the way through the system and then we can do the follow-up and go back in and reach in once they're getting stabilized and everything and then engage them and then take them to the next step, whatever that is, be it housing, be it a DOM program or a rehab program. They need a dog. Are they having problems getting to and from their appointments? Do they need ride? Whatever it is, we've been able to engage to that level to where anybody we get, and I'm talking about the really high risk, you know, kind of people were able to engage them at a level that nobody else has bothered. Right. And, um, 
most of the veterans that people talk to is a lot of veterans you talk to and you mentioned the VA as soon as you mentioned the VA you you watch them get that who farted look on their face like you know um because they've all been let down at some point or another um but I'm telling you the VA is doing a lot more work a lot better work they've really stepped up their game um the people that I work with are amazing from the VA but that's the thing is I have an in I have a back door I have a direct connection and a contact with these people that I've been working with from the marriage challenge to now. I have a lot of resources out there that I can engage. If the VA can help, you know, Jim Zenner over at the MVA can, or Robert Alvarez or, or all these guys, these connections that we've built up these relationships and we all rally together to get something done. And I think that's, that's ta- saying all what I just said is, is to, to anybody out there listening that knows, you know, law enforcement, You need that level of engagement because you can't do it on your own. Your agency can't handle it alone. The VA can't handle it alone. Department of Mental Health can't handle it alone. You know, all these other, the the, uh, nonprofit organizations that exist cannot handle it alone. But together, we can handle anything, right? So instead of being siloed, which is most of these agencies, most of these nonprofits, they silo themselves because they're protecting their reputation, their lack of ability to do things for people or funding stream or something, right? Unfortunately, a lot of times what they're protecting is they want the biggest piece of the pie. Exactly. What we've discovered is the more you share, the bigger your pie gets. Right. It's almost to the point where you can't eat it anymore because it's just so much, right? And so by you sharing it with somebody, it it cross-connects, you know, and and it comes back 10 times. Whatever you give out comes back 10 times. It really does in this in this model in which we what we've been doing and it's just people need to learn that um early on when i was doing it by myself i was going to the 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 veterans collaboration you know la la collab for veterans and you had all these nonprofits. and i think there was like 235 of them or something i don't remember the numbers um but i remember as you know just starting out being like really like gung-ho let's go and uh, I'd run into veterans, and they'd, they'd ha- need a certain kind of help that, oh, I remember this nonprofit. They said they help them. Then I'd call them, and I'd get the constant runaround, man. I'd get, get fingers pointed this way and that way and every other way, and i get so frustrated. I think, I'm, I'm a guy advocating for somebody who needs help. Could I, I can only imagine what it would be like if I needed the help myself. And I think, no wonder these guys walk away. And then that's when I started learning. I, I read a lot of studies, and uh, – um, one, you know, the, the 22 a day, that number they put out, it's more like a, it's a baseline number, I guess. It's been more, it's been less, right? So we'll just call it 22 a day. Of that 22, 17 have either never engaged in services or have walked away from services because they lost hope or it became too difficult for them to go through. So they just give up. That 17 that killed themselves, those are the people that we go out and get and bring them back in. And then we're, we're, we're the ones who advocate for them. We're the ones who engage. We're the ones who fight for them. And uh, it, it, it's working. You know, it's, it's really working. But it's, it's next level stuff. Like I was saying, um, going to the nonprofits, what I found out that many nonprofits are just justifying their funding stream because they printed up a bunch of flyers. Right. And they hand that out and say, call this number if you get in, hell, in trouble. You know, and I'm thinking, you know, that doesn't work. I need, I need you to send me somebody. I need you to open a door. I need you to give me a, a hotel voucher, whatever it is. I need that in my hand now. I don't need to call somebody and get the same frustration and run around. Um, same thing with the homelessness. You know, we deal with a lot of homeless veterans and, and going into the homeless encampments. Um, 
they need you to act now. Otherwise, they don't want nothing you have to offer. Um, and then we discovered, like, barriers to care. Um, you got a veteran with a dog. Almost 100% of the veteran of the outreach and engagement programs out there will tell a veteran you have to get rid of your dog. Where is that going to work with anybody? You know, if if you have you know, the only thing that you love in life and loves you, and you take care better care of that than yourself, and it's obvious when you go into an encampment and you see somebody who has a super healthy, non-skinny, you know, happy dog, and they're suffering you know, they're taking care of them. Right. And then you're telling them you have to get rid of that before I can help you. You know, it doesn't make sense. Right. And so we started seeing that and saying, um, we need to start eliminating barriers to care, no matter what the situation is, find out what the barrier to, to them getting in was, whether it be distrust or, um, been let down by an entity or a V the VA itself or something else. That's a barrier to care. If they have a dog, how do we get rid of the barrier to care? Well, one, one solution for us was you can bring your dog with you. We'll take care of your dog. If we have to take you on a hold, we'll find somebody to take care of your dog for you. We'll get the dog healthy. We'll, we'll provide the food, you know, the shots, the medical stuff. We'll get it groomed. And then when you get out, we reunite you with your dog. We're not going to drop you back off in your encampment. We're going to take you to an apartment, you know, or we're going to take you to a hotel until you can get into your apartment, you know, or if you're homeless and, and you're going through the process already of getting housed, you and your dog get to go to all your appointments back and forth, back and forth until you're let in. And then we take you and your dog to your house, to your apartment. Right. So those are things that I, I don't think, you know, for all these smart people that are engaged in doing this kind of business, I don't, I don't think anybody's ever considered that that's a huge barrier to their care and treatment. And then the other thing we find out is, is um, let's just take homeless. Uh, for example, you got billions of dollars being poured in the homeless um, population and it's getting worse. Um, building yourself into prosperity or, you know, creating homes doesn't, doesn't really fix the problem. Doesn't fix the, you know, the underlying what's going on, the trauma, the, the, the reason they're there in the first place, right. doesn't help with that. Um, what we found out now because of, you know, like project room key they had going on, um, all this temporary solutions is these guys are conditioned to know that, yeah, it's just temporary, so I don't need it, you know. Us as a society on the outside looking into, like, somebody who's homeless would think, oh, wouldn't they like a warm bed? And, yeah, they would. They would like a warm bed and a shower and running water and all that. That would just a way better option than the way they're living. But it's temporary. And Find out why they're living how they're living first. But, yeah, but. Not only that is is all our temporary solutions. We're spending money on temporary solutions instead of fixing the root cause. It's kind of like uh, what I tell my guys is, is, hey, man, don't ever lose your compassion. That's what I feel like. Society's lost their compassion regarding, like, just homeless people, for example. But almost uh, everything regarding human interaction. But homeless people, for example, is is if you can drive by a homeless campment and see all those homeless people and figure and say, it's not your problem. You lost your compassion. You know, if that doesn't bug you, if you can still sleep at night, you lost your compassion. And I always tell my guys, don't ever lose your compassion. That's a human being. And I've heard other people say, well, yeah, but they're drug addicted. Yeah, but what, what caused them to be drug addicted? Because at one point they were normal. They served their country, man. They were not, they got out. They suffered trauma that they didn't, they didn't know they had that was going with them as they exited. Right. 
and uh, my understanding of PTSD now is it, it could last, it could stay with you forever, right? Um, and if you can keep it at bay and it doesn't ever rise up or take over your life, then you're going to be okay. But maybe, um, but for a lot of guys, the trauma, they're living with it for about two years seem to be the mark, right? Where all of a sudden they're normal. They got a, they got a job, they got a family, they're functioning, everything's good. And then almost two years to the day, man, they're, they're like, their life's taking a different turn. They're angry. They're pissed off. They're drinking. They're doing things, you know, they can't explain why. And it's like their life's being taken over and things start falling apart. And then so you, if you amplify that and fast forward it in their life, that's a homeless person that's living, you know, in the tent under the bridge or out in the park or whatever. You got to understand that something caused them to be that way. There's a root cause for it. So be a little more compassionate, man. Show, just show that person that you understand. Don't judge them on the surface. Yeah, they're a drug addict or an alcoholic or they're violent or they have outbursts, but it took a while for them to get like that. Homelessness causes mental illness. Um, I was fortunate to work with a guy named Eric Barrera who got out of the Marine Corps and was six years living as a homeless person, drug addicted, heroin addicted on the streets. Um, and now he's working for a street medicine team, man. Like he's working for the Department of Mental Health or actually for Bob Hope Patriotic Hall doing homeless outreach and engagement. He's the one that taught me how to go into homeless encampments, how to form that bond or that communication with these people and get them to open up. And then you, then you're ready to start talking about getting them somewhere, right? To, to develop that trust, uh, establish that relationship. And, uh, and it was kind of a simple concept, man. Don't go empty handed, you know, whether it's a water bottle, a pair of socks or something, you go there offering them something. It's kind of like a handshake, right? And, uh, that starts the conversation. And, uh, you know, just that one little thing he taught me, um, allowed me to get even further into developing ways to get deeper into what these guys are into. And that's where we're able to figure out that, that every trauma or, or every state you see somebody in, there was a trauma that caused that, which that's pretty normal, right? I guess that'd be basic knowledge for most people in the psych profession. Um, for me, I just saw how it related humanistically, like on that level of just human being to human being, forget the fact that I'm a cop, forget the fact that you're homeless. It's just, you're a human being I'm trying to connect with. What's the problem? How do you, how do you figure out what the problem is, right? The root cause, what it is, what's your issue, man? I'm not judging you, man. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not here to do you harm. I'm not here to bring shame to you, man. I want to lift you out of that. How do you do that? You know? And so, you know, it's always different. It just depends on who you're working with in front of you. Well, and Eric is the connection for you and I, and I oh. had the opportunity to sit in there, talk to Eric and his story. He's got an amazing story. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm truly humbled that he shared it with me. Yeah. Um, what he went through, he talks about how he didn't go into the Marine Corps for the right reasons. He yeah. did. He, he went in thinking that if he, he would become a Marine, it would change his relationship with his dad. He was striving to, for his dad's approval, but then realizing that he had underlying personal issues himself that eventually just kind of took over. And you bring up a great point in that I've had the opportunity to talk to several veterans and the thing with trauma and, and I know they don't call it, they, they don't want to refer to it as PTSD. It's not a disorder. Right. They want post-traumatic stress. 
the thing, regardless, first responder, military, we all get affected differently. There isn't a textbook that says these are the symptoms right. because everybody deals with it differently. And I've talked to some who said, man, I wasn't angry. I wasn't pissed off. I just could never get happy. Yeah. Why was I just going through life that nothing made me happy? Yeah. Or the flip side, you've got somebody who's dealing with it and the doctor's just adding another pill and adding yeah. another pill and adding another pill. And he, he makes comments like, I had to take a cocktail of about nine or 10 pills multiple times a day to where I just started living in this fog. Yeah. You know, it, the fact that we try to put a blanket umbrella over all trauma and say, this is how to treat it. It's, it's sad. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, I'm telling you that, that, uh, the, the two summers I spent with Eric doing this, that, that is one of the most amazing stories. And one of the, the, I say I am blessed that I met Eric. He opened my eyes in so many different ways. And that came from him being, being that person. Right. And then coming out of it, number one, that gave me hope. Right. Right. Like he didn't share a story with me until like we were already into it. I just thought this was some dude, you know, he's a good looking man. I thought he looked like a movie star. I was like, why are you doing this, man? You can, I even told him you could, you can do movies, dude. You can do other things, you know? Um, but, uh, I remember when he shared me a story, man, we went, we went to lunch, you know, I took him to lunch and, uh, and he just opened up and started telling me things. And I was, I was like, Oh, I would never know that about you. If you didn't tell me, I wouldn't believe that. And then thinking about that, I thought, man, there's hope for everybody out there. If he can be that way. And, and he, I, he's told me, I don't mind you sharing my story. You know, he puts it out there. So that's why I say it, put his name and, and what his thing was. Uh, Cause Growing up, going back to my childhood, heroin was the number one killer of everybody in my neighborhood. And for him to have that on his back for six years and being homeless, and he was able to overcome that, there's hope for everybody out there. So it taught me not to give up. Like, I'm not giving up. I got a dude in front of me who's one of the most fantastic people I've ever met in my life, and he's the way he is. After going through that, there's hope for everybody. Well, and you bring up something else that I think is really important that we need to think about it from our own perspective in that you mentioned John Gannon mm -hmm. as being the catalyst for you. Yeah. That one person that was that catalyst, Eric's story, that one person at that the, the diversion clinic or the rehab clinic that saw something in Eric and said, I want you to help me get more people off the street. It's, it's being that one person. And we never know what that might be. It might literally just be offering that voice of affirmation to somebody like, hey, man, you're doing a good job. Yeah. That might be, you know, so never overlook the potential opportunity that each one of us has to impact somebody's life. And I'll go to another extreme of, you know, I've had a, another guest on the podcast, Jess Kazada, and she got kicked out of the Marine Corps, failed a drug test. She could have been very angry blame the marine corps she takes full responsibility of it she she hey this was on me i screwed up but in turn she didn't turn away from the military she still loves veterans and she's created a group of inclusiveness mm -hmm. like hey come with me but the one of the things that she said that was really poignant in her episode is let's stop comparing just because I'm the lowest of the low veteran. I still experience trauma. I don't have to be a Navy SEAL to, to yeah. say that my trauma is valid. Stop yeah. making it a comparison. 
we all served our country. We all experienced different things. We all experienced different, or we experienced trauma differently. Let's stop making it a, you didn't do as much as I did. Yeah, that's, to me, that's, that's BS, you know. Because um, otherwise the military wouldn't work the way it does. We wouldn't be as as powerful as right. we are. As a nation, you know, uh, our nation's strength would be, it would be relegated just to the best, right? Only the best can go and fight. Only the best can do. Man, you need support all along, every, yes. at every level. Uh, it's a shame that she considers herself the lowest of the low, man. No, she you didn't. Know? She wasn't considered. She was saying we need to stop yeah. this tear oh, sense. Okay. You know, cool. people kind of discount some guy or girl who was stuck in the motor pool. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we were all veterans, regardless what yeah. you did in the Marine Corps yeah. or, or in the service. That's what I say, man. It's like, uh, yeah, I was a firefighter. So, you know. If there was a fire, I'd come and do my job, and then the ship doesn't sink, right? But at the same time, I need a meal, man. You know, so if the cooks didn't do their job, I wouldn't have the nourishment to keep going. Yep. And then, you know, it, it's just, it, I think that's kind of what we're talking about, right? We all rely on each other. That's that's the, that's the how my team and or our team functions with the VAPD people and the other people that we deal with. Um, we all rely on each other, man, you know, and uh, everybody has to do their job. And everybody's got a different talent. Everybody's got a different niche, something they like, you know. And, and that was early on when I finally got my full team. I had to, I had to develop. I, I just find out what each individual was into because not everybody's good at everything. Right. And so I just put them on that task, right? So now, like on my team, I got a guy who deals with all the, the geriatric elderly veterans, right? That's his thing. That's his niche. You know, his dad was a Vietnam veteran. You know, his stepfather's a Vietnam veteran. And uh, they're up in age and experience all the things they're experiencing. So he's compassionately involved with helping elderly veterans. Uh, I got another guy. He's, he's my canine guy, right? And he's the one working out everything to do with canine, right? Whether he's got his own dog, you know, because I want him to go through that process. And he's training so then he knows when he refers other veterans into programs like that and we get them dogs, he knows what they're going through and knows how to speak that language. And then he also transport the homeless veterans that, have dogs to all their appointments stuff. So he understands, right? So we built a, a whole program around him with his vehicle and himself and his education. Then I got a homeless outreach and engagement guy who, who does nothing but homeless veterans. Right. And then, um, the female on my team, you know, naturally I wanted her to gravitate to doing the, the military sexual trauma. Right. Um, but it was kind of funny. That one kind of backfired on me, but not backfired, but I didn't realize that. And this is, I could just say just from my experience, right, in the last five, six years of doing this, the as far as sexual trauma, the ones that were suicidal, I, I never realized this, but were mostly male. They're the ones that internalized that stuff and would never share it and still probably this day would never. So you almost got to figure it out right. when you're dealing with them. But then I thought, well, it, it, it wasn't a total loss, right, having her go in that direction because – all the females out there still need to help, right? And 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 I believe that, you know, when that happened to them, it, it changed their life on whatever trajectory they took. They they were traumatized, you know, sexually at some point they were doing fine. And then because that happened, like the person you mentioned, what maybe they got into drugs or something while they're in the military started acting out behavior issues, something like that, and then they were drummed out of the military. So our program is kind of looking at how do we redeem their lives? How can we go back and do like a, like a forensic or a law enforcement type of investigation to say, 
No, military, you're responsible for this person still. Because what happened to them, you failed to recognize it. You failed to come to their aid, come to their call. Nobody listened to them. They were in the good old boy system, and they got drummed out because they opened their mouth because they didn't want to embarrass the military, right? And so their, their service to their country was honorable. It's what happened to them. The root causes was caused them to get booted out on other and honorable conditions. So the idea is to... One day, I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping from somebody from Department of Defense, the Navy, whoever, I don't care, I'll work with anybody that's willing to, is to go back and look at those cases and see how we could redeem those folks. At least upgrade their their discharge to honorable so they can get the help where they need it. The VA has a lot of great programs. Like, they, they take, uh, regardless of your discharge status, it doesn't matter. You can dishonorable discharge. They'll give you up to 90 days of mental health stabilization. No questions asked, Right. They have the same thing for sexual trauma. The problem is, and I've talked to a lot of these people that have gone through that, if you're other and honorable and you're not connected already to the VA, it's not like you can just come and make an appointment with your psych and say, hey, I have this thing going on. And then you, you have that private conversation. No, you have to walk in cold and you got to talk to somebody at a desk who's filling out paperwork. You got to answer all their questions. So you're reliving that trauma with somebody who might not care. Then they pass it on to somebody else who then will have a conversation with you and then you're really having that trauma again. It's, it's almost too much, man. They don't make it easy just to walk in and talk directly to a psych. You have to justify or validate that the fact that you had sexual trauma because it's documented somewhere. Maybe. Maybe it's not, right? Um, and then you got to go through that process. So the females seeking help, they just, again, it's like those 17 of the 22. They just said, never mind. I'm not right. going through that shit again. And so they don't. And so... Um, that's the kind of, that's where our program, we're looking into reaching those and then being their advocates so they don't have to. We can do it for them through a process, advocate for them, and then have somebody look at it in a private manner, get them the help they need, and at the same time, try and upgrade that discharge status at least. So it could be general under honorable conditions, something that gives them connection to the VA, where it is, in, in my opinion, they've stepped it up a lot. There are the place to go if you if you know dental medical whatever you're a veteran and you've had nothing else your whole life the va is a great place to go for that kind of stuff they do amazing work now the people that are involved though at different levels probably aren't connected you know passionately or compassionately to the people they serve it's more like a job for them so when these guys enter that arena, along the way, somebody discourages them and they drop back out. That's the shame of that, right? Um, but our team's built to advocate for that and to go the distance and fight for those people, to um, to fight for the voice that normally wouldn't get he- heard. Um, we're that voice, and we do a pretty good job. Um, my counterpart, uh, Captain Dave Harris from the VAPD, West LA uh, VA, he joined up with me about two years ago when I was just before I got my team funded. Um, um, he joined up with me because I had been, so Long Beach VA started a VMET team. Um, John Gannon, Dave Weiner, when Dave was a chief, they got together, they wrote a white paper and developed, John helped them develop, John, Dave wanted what we had to bring it to the VA because he knew there was a, a, a necessity for it. Um, and it kind of... It kind of it started taking off because the people that were involved were very involved and they were engaging with us all the time. And we'd call them back and forth, back and forth. At some point, Dave left the program, 
the person that came in behind him wasn't so enthusiastic and kind of left it on his people just to work it out. And it kind of fell off, you know, it, it, it wasn't as effective as it could have been. And, um, they didn't gain the full potential. They didn't, they didn't rise to the full potential of what they could have been. No knock on them. When you're not supported, it's really hard to get things going, right? So you do the best you can. And I'm going to briefly say, and I'm going to put this under one giant umbrella, I believe we're at that point across the board with mental health and trauma, both from the veteran side and even from the first responder side mm-hmm. of what they're experiencing today. In the sense that, the last five or 10 years, we're seeing good progress yeah. in acknowledging trauma, making it okay to ask for trauma, normalizing that asking for help is okay. But I do believe that in every one of those aspects, it's it, the tide isn't strong yet. Yeah. And it, if, if we let off the gas a little bit, it'll go back the other way, the old yeah. school way of ignore it, suck it up, you know, yeah. kind of deal. So I do believe that unfortunately, we're still in that point that Whoever takes over next, and you've already talked about this, one of the things keeping you in it is, is it, is it, does it have enough momentum yet that when I step away, that train's just going to keep going? Yeah, yeah, yeah 100%, right? Because that's unfortunately what happened in Long Beach. That momentum is gaining and building a West LA. Like, for three years, it took me three years of courting West LA because Long Beach was in because of Chief Weiner, and so that was easy. I wanted to try and engage all the VAs. Like, my... It, you know, ignorantly in my head, I thought all the VAs would love this. They would come, you know, they're all campus centric, right? So what they expect is you got to come to us and then we'll help you. But you can only come Monday through Friday, nine to five. And your trauma ends at five and don't start up again until nine o'clock the next morning, right? That's kind of the way they're built. And then I started thinking, because I'm a veteran, but I never really engaged the VA myself because I had good insurance with, with my department. I thought, um, well, all the VAs, man, we have three of the biggest VAs. You got Loma Linda, you got Long Beach and West LA. We shouldn't have the veteran homeless problem. We shouldn't have the mental illness you know, problem with veterans that we do in LA. 300,000 veterans live in LA. 12,000 plus settle every year in LA because LA is the place to be. We have the largest population of veterans in the nation. We have the largest suicide rate among veterans in the nation and the largest homeless population of veterans in the nation with three VAs. I'm thinking what's missing, you know, and it's because the way the system's set up, if you know one VA, you know, one VA because they operate completely different and independent of each other. They don't communicate. They're siloed. So right there was like, okay, this is the model we need to build. We need to be the conduit between these VAs. We need to be the ones going out and get these veterans and bringing them to the VA. If they're not willing to go out and get them, we'll do that. And so that's what we were doing. And it was based on just suicide, suicide response and uh, um, crisis response type of model. Right. And then that morphed into now we have a suicide prevention program on that that works. And that's what I told you before, like we did with with Kevin and Angel and Hanif and, you know, all these guys that we've dealt with is more personal level. And so we're engaging differently. We've broken down the silos at the greater LA, West LA VA. They're all in. They got an amazing police chief and staff. The director over there believes in the program. Everything is functioning great over there. But Long Beach is resiloed, you know, and it's like, it's a shame. It's like, damn, you were the ones that helped us start this thing. But then you backed out, you know, for whatever reason. And so we're hoping that, and, and it's political, I guess, you know, and I don't like to get into that crap because I'm not a politician, 
Um, I just see things as they are. It's, it's if these guys communicate with these guys and they can form a relationship where they can grow each other and then use us the same way that we need to be used. And then Loma Linda joins in, you know what you're going to have? You're going to have n- no more suicides of veterans in LA. Your homeless population is going to be dried up and gone. You know, you're going to have a, a conduit of care through every silo there is every single one of these veteran uh um what do you call the uh the the collaboratives you know the nonprofits, they're all going to be engaged with each other and it's going to be all for the same purpose just different tasks different levels different things are going to be going on all at once but everybody's involved so if i get a guy and it has to do with somebody who needs financial aid um, that's not my shop but i have 13 organizations that can help you. And instead of giving them a card and saying, here, here's call a number. I'm going to call the person and say, Hey, I got a guy. Can you help him right now? I'm sorry. I'm too busy. Okay. I'll call the next one. I got a guy. Can you help him right now? Yeah, I can help him. Bring him here. Okay. And I take him, and we, we, it's, it's not even a hard handoff. It's a, Hey, I'm going to drop you off. You want me to stay with you? I'll be with you or call me and I'll pick you back up. But then the other thing is, Hey, I'm letting you know. If you let him down, I'll never talk to you. I'll never use you again. Because that's how I became. Anybody who ever said they help a veteran and they didn't, I just I just treat them like they had the plague and I never call them again. Because it's like, I don't need you. If your only purpose is to talk a lot of shit and not back it up, I don't need you. You're an organization that is absolutely useless to me. Because the people I'm dealing with, they needed me because that's how I got there. And I need you because you're saying you have all the answers or you have at least some of them. I need you to do your job because this is critical. We're dealing with a human being right here. And so that's kind of how I started being. And it, it, it put me in a dark place for a while, man. I, I took a lot of shit home and I, I, you know, had a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of things, you know, going on. But uh, um, but the the redeeming factor was the Eric Pereira's, you know, the Dave Harris's, you know, the people, the, the Jim Zerner, Sharon Berman, all these people that are able to redeem the people who failed has been pretty, pretty fantastic. It's, it's kind of restored like hope, like, okay, just keep doing it, man. Just stay in it. Just keep, you're go you're on the right track. You're doing the right thing. Just keep doing it. And you know, like you said, one day it's going to all come together. We need to push this train. So it gains so much momentum that nobody can stop it. Um, for a time, man, I felt like I was the only one in the back of the train pushing. And then now I look over my shoulder and I got hundreds of other people right along there with me and I'm starting to see the tracks go by, man. It's, they're starting to move, but it's still hard, you know? Um, but you know, that's, that's kind of where we're at right now. And I've said this on other episodes and, and talking to guests who are fighting that fight and they literally are, was it Sisyphus who's pushing the rock up the hill? Yeah. And they literally are the only one pushing that rock up that hill. But I, I tell them, I said, take that one person that, that was the success and that just keeps driving you because you have to fall back on the fact that if you weren't doing what you were doing, that one success wouldn't have happened. Down the road, there'll be 10. Down the road, there'll be 30, yeah. you know, kind of deal. It's going to grow, but it's hard, but we just, you know, you got to keep at it. I, I look at I look at it with this podcast. You know, my goal is to try to give back to the first responder and veteran community. And if I can have one guest who says, I could sit here by myself and talk about the importance of mental health and talk about the importance of taking care of yourself physically. All that, Think about what you're going to do tomorrow. It's going to become white noise. 
Yeah. Listening to you, listening to Eric, it's going to resonate with a different person and it's going to hit differently. And they're like, oh, okay. And that for me is, is where the success comes. And, and just keep putting that foot in front of the other. You know, and before you know it, you're 10 miles down the road. As opposed to thinking, oh, man, I got to go 10 miles. Yeah. I, I think, you know, what you say is, is, is 100% true. I mean, I, I did a bad job early on, and I still do. I'm, I'm not a marketing guy. I don't tell anybody what I do. I don't, I don't share it, man. I, I just deal with people, and I go home thinking about the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, right? And along the way, I've been able to, to solicit people to, to come in and list people to join me. And, and I don't even share things with them, like, like things that were crushing to me or things that, you know, until I figure out like, okay, I've worked it out. It works now. Share it, right. Like take a model, build it, test it. I've had to shelve it cause I've had no support or no funding. Do it as I can on my own. Now that it's building is growing. I, I think now we're in a time of place that where the word needs to get out about what we do and how we do it. And, and, um, your platform is one of many, but I think it's, the most honest way to do it. Cause you're just raw with somebody, you know, it's whatever comes, comes. None of this stuff is scripted. I'm not reading off a manual cause I'm afraid to take a chance and I don't want to go outside of something and you know, Oh, maybe you shouldn't have said that hundred percent of what I said, I'll say it again, you know? Um, and I think your platform offers people that chance to hear it like from the heart and for real. So I appreciate you uh, inviting me here. I thank you for your time. Where I want to go next, though, is, and you just alluded to it. So when I was in command of a child child exploitation team, one of the things I credit the FBI with doing over the last several years is the men and women who were engaged in going after those predators saw that what those investigators and law enforcement officers were experiencing was traumatic. And so they started implementing this model of, hey, every six months, you're going to go talk to a counselor because what you're seeing, what you're experiencing is having trauma on you. And and I really commend that model. Again, going Mm -hmm. with the fact that we got to take care of the people doing the job. Same thing for you. When you now got deep into this, what are you doing for you and your team? Or what are you imposing on your team to help make sure they're doing okay? Because you're talking about engaging people and you're living their trauma when they're telling you what they're experiencing or or what you're seeing. How are you guys dealing with it? That's funny. You bring that up. Um, So early on um, my partner and I, um, Dave, we we were dealing with somebody and his trauma, like I didn't know, you know, my, my partner was a, and and he said, it's okay to tell his story too. So I'll, I'll tell it. Um, he he'd been he had a couple of deployments in Afghanistan and Iraq and uh the guy we were called to deal with, um, they had a lot in common. They served at the same time. The guy we were dealing with was special forces and Dave was in support of his unit when they were pinned down one time and, and they knew a lot of the same people. They lost a lot of the same people, but they didn't know each other. And just how small the world is, right? And a so, shitty way to come back around full circle. Really is, really is. And uh, when we were taking this guy, we went and picked him up in Ventura. Um, he's a guy, he, he put the gun in his mouth, pulled the trigger, had a primer strike, ejected it, saw the primer strike, and said, I need help. And that's how he, he got, you know, somebody reached out to Dave. Dave called me, and then we rolled. 
on the way back, because we told him, we're going to take you to the VA, man. We're going to get you help. And he was cool with it because he said he needed it, right? That was his moment. He's like, hey, I'm not dead. There's a reason I'm still here, so let me ask for help. And uh, when Dave and him were engaging, and it was funny because uh, I can I couldn't see. I could see him, the, the guy sitting behind me in the car. I could see him through the rearview mirror. Dave was sitting next to him, but I could see Dave's reflection in the in the in the window. And they were on a subject, and all of a sudden, Dave went quiet, man. And he just stared out, and I could see his eyes were welling up a little bit. I was like, oh, my God. I did not realize at the time the trauma we bring on ourselves when we're trying to help somebody else, especially if your lives are connected that way, right? And so that taught me a, a huge lesson. And, and Dave was okay. He said it, it put him back in, you know, into therapy. He went and saw his counselor and was cool, you know, and, and he's worked through it and everything's great. And he learned a lesson about it. But that was the one thing I considered when I was selecting my, the members for my team. And I was fortunate enough to be able to do that. Everybody said, you need combat veterans. You need veterans that have been there. And I said, no, no, hold on. I don't. I need somebody who's already dealt with their demons and is cool with it and knows how to seek help when they need it. I need somebody who's found the answers, you know, to all their unanswered questions, right? To, that knows where to go when they get in that dark place and then can come back. Because I don't want to put somebody in a situation where we go out and we're dealing with somebody who's in trauma and, you know, in crisis. And then all of a sudden they go into crisis and I have to take care of two people. Right. And then now I'm responsible for that teammate in that situation. And so on my team, I have three veterans and two non-veterans. And because uh, you, like you, like you said, you don't have to be a veteran to have compassion for veterans and to, develop that want that want or that desire to to serve them and so it was kind of like the naysayers that were kind of on the outside looking in when we were building this thing up it's like oh you know you shouldn't have people who aren't veterans i said you're dead wrong about that so because it doesn't matter who you're dealing with veteran non-veteran whatever when you're in trauma you know who shows up for you you know who's there for you and the people i chose are the ones that have the heart to show up for people every time and to project that Right. And so part of my interview process with the veterans, the guys who've been through things is I simply just ask them, have you dealt with your demons? And when they, if they give me like some thing where like, ah, I'm good, you know, and they got that macho kind of, yeah, dude, you, you, you got some growing to do. Thanks. I appreciate it. But you're not the one, but the ones who said, yeah, I've been to counseling, man. I've, I, I'm still dealing with today, but I'm okay. You know? Okay. As long as you know what to do when the time comes, if it comes, you're not going to keep that stuff silent. And so then as a team now, we practice, you know, self-care and, and looking out like the buddy program, right? If, if you come off in a, a case where you can see your partners change a little bit, we start talking about it, you know, start engaging and, and figure it out. And then, you know, and, and I've purposely pulled people out of the field and put them in training or do something else because I know they had a hard week or hard couple of weeks. And I said, now you're going to school. You know, you need that break, the, the time away, and then they come back and they, they don't feel like it's me, like, you know, daddy looking out and, right. you know, pull them out of something they want to do because nobody wants to be pulled off of something. So I don't pull them off. I just repurpose them. Go do something else because it's important for what we do as a team in growth, you know. And so I've been able to do that. And I've been fortunate enough to have the uh, working as a task force with the West LA VA folks is I can actually task my guys to, to go with them and help them. And then so we, it's, it's, it's now they're at the facility, especially my veterans. They're at a facility where if they're caught up, they're there. 
they can just take a break and go talk to somebody if they feel that's their need or my partners over at the VA, the VAPD are very good at getting other people that aren't veterans or that are veterans to sign up, <laughs> you know, register and, and get your, you know, your healthcare and stuff. They did that to me. I, I finally did it after 36 years. I never registered with the VA or anything. And, and part of just wanting to know what the process is like is why I did it. And, uh, you know, um, it's been an eye opener, but yeah, um, self-care is a big deal. And then look it out for your buddies another huge deal on this team and we do see a lot of trauma that sets in um i'll tell you though as a cop you're for me personally this is me personally right um i'll wait till i retire to talk about certain things you know because you never know you know and i and i get because you and i came up in an era that and there's still that stigma of talking you know i've had other guests who are embedded with law enforcement agencies and you know my first guest shiloh is former cop became a, a psychologist you know and and now she's embedded and she says that one of the things that helps with her organization is she's right there and i i, I don't I, I use the analogy you have to get to the point where you're kind of like the couch in the room people just learn to ignore you until they want to sit down yeah as opposed to organizations that are getting better and they're saying, okay, every Wednesday, Dr. Dr. Smith's going to come in for anybody who wants to talk. You yeah. Know? I'm not yeah. Gonna t- you know, I'm yeah. not ready to talk on, on Wednesday. Exactly. And, and so I get it. I get, yeah. you know, not wanting to talk, but one of the things that I've been thinking about lately and it, it, in a, maybe a naive, you know, altruistic way, if we could take law enforcement from here forward and just go back to the days when you're first pushing a sled and you're out on your, and that first time you go to that horrific child abuse call. Mm. What about if we just normalize our TOs going, hey, how'd that call make you feel? Are you okay with it? Yeah. You know, as opposed to, all right, let's on get to the, the next, next one. one. Next one, next one, next one. Yeah. You know, yeah, and, and be a good idea. Things, things will change over time, but I, I can understand where you're coming uh, from. Well, you know, what we've done, um, we're also the first responders for veterans inside our department. So I've sent all my guys to, to our, our uh, um, school that we have for, uh, um, through our psych services. Um, and it's like kind of peer support program, kind of on steroids. Um, because there's been a few incidents, like I've, I've been doing it for the last five years, basically by myself. Um, we've had veterans on the department go into crisis i'd say maybe not totally crisis but somebody had issues and i didn't know what to do right um i was fortunate enough to be involved in a few of those where i was able to steer it in the right direction and they were able to get the proper help in the right way as opposed to a department going there's a liability here we need to relieve them of duty you know we need to you know put a hold, put them on a hold and all this crap right that just not only stigmatize them, but if you really were worried about somebody killing himself, they're going to do it now because you took away everything they were about. You, you changed their identity overnight. You know, you took them away from being part of an institution that they were proud of and they had support and you give them a, like you stigmatize them to the point where people think, Oh, there's something wrong with that person. So then they don't reach out. And what do you do? You tell them you, know, you got to stay home until we call you, you know, then you're isolating them at home. Well, we're still paying you that's good enough. No, it's not, you know, that's, 
if, if it, as the, as a department and all departments are the same, like I can speak for every police agency out there, they do the same thing because mental health is so foreign to them that they think the, there's only one solution to protect the department where some of the people I've dealt with are thriving to this day. It was like, it was just a speed bump, man. It was just a one bad day. That was it. You know, you know, too many beers or something, you know, just one outburst of emotion that they really didn't mean. And had we not had a program in place to deal with that, these people would have been lost forever. And uh, so that's been pretty positive. You know, the outcome of that is sending my whole team to that. So as a team, we also respond to the veterans inside the department, you know, and that's everybody. It doesn't matter if you're sworn or non-sworn or whatever. It's, it's, you're a veteran. And because we have more resources than what the department offers externally, I think the department, they like that, right? And, uh, and helps restore human life. And then the department doesn't lose all that investment. So their return on investment is even bigger by engaging us to do that rather than just doing what's easy, covering the liability and then washing your hands and, and hey, good luck to you in the future, you know? And then hearing about it later, they killed themselves because they no longer fit in or, you know, their identity was taken away or whatever. Um, so that was, uh, that's another positive thing that came out of what we do. Um, not only do, do we do it for you know, the ones that are lost um, and have been lost in society and that, that are obvious because everybody sees them as they pass them every day, but we do it to the ones that were just lost and nobody well, knew. And I hate to bring it down to a dollars and cents thing, but unfortunately there's a lot of organizations that look at problems from a, from the bottom line on their spreadsheet. Yeah. But it's 2023 and there aren't a lot of people walking through the door who want to be cops anymore. Oh man. And so if your way of dealing with somebody that you've already onboarded, somebody you've already trained is to send them away yeah. as opposed to working on a viable solution to keep them going, you're still losing money. Yeah. You know, so let, let's start treating people like people and not lines on a, a spreadsheet. And then you think, too, um, going back to what we were talking about, um, the two-year mark, a lot of these kids that we hire, you know, I hate to call them kids because I'm an old man <laughs> now, but I'll call them They're kids. kids. You know, they're kids. A lot of these people we hire, the young people, um, they haven't dealt with their traumas yet. And they get this job and they're going full, hard charging forward. And then that two-year mark hits, man, and, and they're, professional life start taking a turn they can't figure it out and nobody else can all of a sudden they're just having behavioral issues and they're just a bad person or a bad cop or whatever no man there's something wrong dude just came out of war right as anybody checked that out and it should never be a disqualifying factor because they have a lot to offer but there's that care component that we don't build into our system right we know who we're taking in we're taking in the best of the best right a society because those people put their life on the line so they don't deserve to be shunned, but you also have to build another component that says, eh, we're not keeping an eye on them, but we have a, a metric that we've developed that if it does start going this way, we have people that can respond to them and, and get them back on their feet. It's kind of like we've just recently worked out, right? And uh, that's that's kind of, you're just paying attention to what I've seen outside. I was able to kind of offer that as a solution inside and the, the powers that be at the time liked it. And so they said, go for it. And so we're building a, a whole program around that, you know, and uh, so it's like a, a broader, uh, instead of just working with like my team and the trauma we absorb and dealing with that, we're able to do that department wide now because everybody, when they, like you said, when they start pushing a sled, 
you know, you work custody for a while. As a sheriff's department, you work custody for a while, and then you don't see much trauma, really. I, I don't I don't remember any. It's been a while. But then when you hit the streets, you know, then you're seeing that stuff that you start absorbing. And how's that impact? You know, how many babies have to die in your arms or how many hor- horrific car accidents you have to see where young people are just, you know, all that horrible stuff that we see as law enforcement every day. And we were taught to just suck it up and move on. And it's your job and you need to be tough and all this. There's a breaking point, you know, for some people, for a lot of people. But, uh, you know, so now we're able to run to their aid also. If somebody's listening who works for an organization, obviously, other than yours, and has an idea that maybe they would like to push this train forward in their environment, I would imagine a good starting point, though, was get them into a good training class or or read a book first to kind of get a little bit better knowledge of it. Is there any training or books that you would recommend for somebody who wants to start down this path? You know, what I was doing, because... Like I said, this is not a path I chose to take. It just kind of happened for me. Um, so I had to immerse myself and just understand, you know, from a perspective, of I know nothing and I need to catch up, right? Um, so I started reading a lot of studies. Um, what what I first started on was suicide, you know, reading all the suicide studies and, and uh, um, reading uh, what people were saying about them, the people in the professional side of it. And one of the, one of the best studies I read, and I'm not, I, it's a different name, but it, it, it was like hopelessness and the eventual suicide. And that's where I learned how reinstilling hope in somebody is probably going to prevent the suicide. And then just, just statistical things to start, right? Anything that would kind of give you a number picture, if you're kind of that way, where you want to see it in numbers. And then the other thing is just, just pay attention to people who have been doing it a long time and have had some success. Um, TED Talks, books, um, internet's great. Like Elon Musk says, there's all kinds of information out there. All you got to do is take advantage of it. You don't have to go to a formal campus to get it, right? Um, so, and then there's so many aspects to what we do. If if you wanted to just make your portion of it be suicide response or crisis response, you can go into that world and just stay there. Um, but then there's suicide prevention and suicide response and prevention are two different things. You know, um, the response is going to get somebody who's in crisis, right? And stabilize them and get them into care. The prevention is everything that happens afterwards, right? Um, You know, you just, the way I put it is you find the need and fill it, right? Find the need, see what's needed, and then however you can, you, you find out what works for that need, whatever it be. So, you know, it, it, I, I can't say any one thing works, um, but the more you put in, the more you get out, the deeper you go, you know, the broader you'll get, and uh, and then you come up with your own answers. So uh, as far as education goes, there's so much out there, you know. Um, I would say start with the VAs and, and uh, collect some of their, their handbooks, you know, veteran resources, stuff like that. Know what, know what you can do for people. Um, and then start discovering how you can affect, like, like what your ability is, right? There's things you can do. There's places you can bring people, but do you have the capacity? Do you have the ability, you know, like assess what it's going to cost before you start building something and then just start going that way. Um, that, that's kind of the approach I took, you know, for me, 
not knowing anything and I'm still learning every single day. I like my mind gets blown like on a daily. Um, but then find good partners, find people who are, who are compassionate and, and want to be, want to help, you know, whoever that is, you know, if, if your police chief or your sheriff or whoever is into it, you, you got a good start. If they're not, don't worry about it. You can bring them along by your successes. Right. Um, and then just work on one victory at a time. All you got to do is save one, right? When we came on, that's, I never forgot the reason I became a cop, man. It was just to help people. And uh, saving one was always the, the, the mantra, right? If you could save one life in your career, your whole career was justified. And then when you get to do what we do now, what with my team and what with the people I work with now, I get to see the impact of the lives we save. I can literally count the lives we're saving as we're saving them. And it's not us saving them per se, because we're, we're, we're just a conduit for it, but we have an effect or we have, we have something that we do that the outcome is positive and we could see somebody's life change because of our efforts. So if we didn't do what we did, they'd be gone. Right. But because we were able to do what we did, we contributed to that. And like I said, it's, it's everybody, right. It's not just one entity. Um, when you have a part of that, it makes you feel good and makes you want to do it again and again and again and again. And then sooner or later you start sleeping better at night and things get better, you know? So, you know, that's as far as my, my two cents, you know, if somebody's got more questions specifically for you, what's a good email to reach out to you at? Um, you can, my private email, if, if it's like an outside entity, if you're not uh, law enforcement, uh, you can just uh, hit me up. Um, I get a Reagan email. It's B O N A V one one at Reagan.com. It's R E A G A N dot com they can contact you and then you can contact me um my i never close my doors or my eyes so anytime anywhere i'll put the email in the show notes and then obviously if anybody wants to get in contact with you a different way they can they can send me a contact through the website sure sure i appreciate your time and i wish you the, the continued success with what you're doing well thank you i appreciate it Thank you for taking your time to listen to the podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed it. Not only is the podcast available on audio platforms, but you can also watch it on YouTube at the Transition Drill Podcast channel. Please subscribe for future episodes. The best way you can help the show is by getting the word out. If you think somebody else might enjoy it, I would appreciate it if you would share it with them. Also, if you have the time, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a rating. I welcome your feedback, both positive and negative. You can also go to the website, transitiondrillpodcast.com. And through the contact tab, send a message directly to my email with any comments or suggestions. Thank you again, and I hope you tune in for the next one.